another week and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune into DLC, especially if you are one of our geeks in sneaks, making this show part of your workout, getting you through. We're going to be in your ear holes for 90 plus minutes with gaming goodness because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be. And that is completely free. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Gamefly, Casper, and Bloom That. They make the show possible, bringing it to you. DLC, of course, the show, all about games. And there are many forms, games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T, and I am joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy who joins me in saying, Viva la France. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, everybody. Do do people call you Jeffrey? Um, only when they're upset. <laughs> Little <laughs> no, I like I like being called Jeffrey. Okay, yeah. I feel like I never leave you messages, but in the times when I call you and I get your voicemail, you introduce yourself as Jeffrey Canada, and I was mm-hmm. wondering after all these years if I've been offending you every day. <laughs> no, you offend me every day, but not for that reason. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm registered um, as uh, in SAG as an actor as Jeffrey. Oh, that's my, that's my, that's my name. Don't wear that's it your, out. That's your screen name. Got it. That's my name. Um, we have a big show for you, folks. It's going to be a jam packed full of stuff. We got lots of things to talk about. Prey is out. We're going to be talking about that. Some big news. Oh, it, it, it's pre E three time, so stuff is stuff is dribbling out. Stuff is breaking. It's it's a good time, and we have an awesome guest to do it with. I'm really excited this week. You know that DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian, but this week DLC stands for Drifter of Lights creator because we have the game maker behind Hyperlight Drifter and now creative director at Square Enix Montreal, Mr. Teddy Deef. Hey, Teddy. Hello. Do you, do you, uh, so are you registered as Jeffrey and SAG because Jeff was taken or because you wanted to go Jeffrey? Uh, it's because I wanted to go Jeffrey. Uh, I, I, uh, I thought it would be cool. Uh, I also, that's my name. Like that's my full name. So that's what I wanted to be. But this is so lame. This is the kind of thing that like a young, you know, just out of high school actor thinks about a young Jeffrey thinks about and a young <laughs> Jeffrey. Yeah. Is, uh, I always loved it. <laughs> this is so lame. I can't believe I'm even saying this, but I love, I always loved it when people, when people said, uh, you know, Marty Scorsese and they're like, but I, everybody knows him as Martin Scorsese, but, but, but people who know, like are friends with him, you can tell because they call him Marty. So I always wanted like to be Bobby like, De Niro. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, officially I'm Jeffrey Kanata, but you, you know me, I'm Jeff, you know? Cool. So that's... if I'm like name dropping you, be like, yeah, I was on the cast with Jeff. Who like, <laughs> yeah, that's all gone out the window now because uh, I am less known as an actor than I am as a as a Jeff. So as whatever. a friend, yeah. Real quick, Teddy, did you ever consider Theodore? I'm assuming his full name, or did you? When did you decide Teddy? Teddy was it? Oh man. Uh, so I'm Edward, uh, which I'm told is the more common Teddy uh, origin name for the UK. Okay. Uh, neither of my parents is from the UK, uh, but it was like a, it was a day one thing or it was like a day negative whenever they named me thing. They were like, we're going to give him this name because it's like a family name, but we're going to call him Teddy because we like that name. Um, and thus has my life been complicated ever since. <laughs> I love stuff like that. We named our first daughter Estelle thinking we would call her Ellie, but we wanted to give her the option of the full name. We called her Ellie for a little bit and then it just became Estelle. And then we asked her when she was little, like, what do you like, Estelle or Ellie? And she goes, Never Ellie, 
only Estelle. <laughs> she'd like, you know, two. And we were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I love that. I was like, well, let's see if we can even jam pack all the stuff we have into this episode. And we're like, let's do 20 minutes on names. It was like four. Sorry. I think it's interesting. <laughs> no, it is. It is interesting. Since we are doing stuff at the beginning of the show, I wanted to take a second and tell people about my daily video game show on Anchor. If you can't get enough of me talking about video games, I do it every single day over on Anchor uh, on a show called Newest, Latest, Best it's just 10 minutes a day, get you updated. I talk about stuff in real time as it happens, all the big news, what games are coming out. It's great. Uh, I hope you guys give it a shot. You can find it at anchor.fm slash NLB for newest, latest, best. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash NLB. Also, I want to mention there is bonus content at the end of this episode. If you're an Anchor listener, you've already heard it because it was an earlier in the week episode of uh, newest latest best but i'm throwing it on the end of this episode it's a great interview more people should hear with the creative director of giant sparrow games talking about what remains of edith finch it's a really fascinating interview we get into some really cool topics including how he feels about the term walking simulator and uh whether or not he agrees with that atlantic article that we talked about last week so i hope you guys Check that out and stick around at the end of the episode for that bonus content. But right now, let's start the show the way we always do with Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration using our hashtag on Twitter, which is DLCSOTW, or by visiting our subreddit, which is a really cool place where really cool people hang out and do really cool things. That is 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Teddy, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Uh, I kind of want to talk about this StarCraft source thing. Yeah, it's a, it, this is a, a, one of those feel-good stories, I think. Um, yeah. Although, if you dig a little deeper, it's, it's a little interesting. Uh, basically, what happened is uh, a Reddit user um, – what is his name? Do I have it here? Anyway, Reddit user was uh, – I guess he bought one of those storage unit things that you see on the, on the, on the reality shows or the, you know, the storage wars. Movies. Spy movies, that too. Uh, and uh, found a package in it that had the source code for StarCraft, the Gone Gold st- source code for the original StarCraft in it. He got on Reddit. He's like, what do I do? I feel like this is valuable. How do I sell it? How do I make money? What do I do? And a bunch of people are like, uh, you, you're about to get sued, bro. And he went, oh, really? I should probably talk to a lawyer. And the lawyer was like, yeah, this looks like stolen property. And he got a phone call from a lawyer from Blizzard, and the Blizzard lawyer said, yeah, that's stolen property. Can we have it back? And he said, absolutely. And he sent it to them, and Blizzard was so grateful that they, like, flooded him with merchandise. They're giving him an all-expense-paid trip to BlizzCon in November. They gave him, like, all this merch, $250 credit on the Blizz store. So that's pretty cool. He did the right thing. He didn't. He wasn't a D about it. He just he did the right thing, and they rewarded him. I want to see so, the transcript, though. Like I, I think the, like it's a feel good story, and I love it. But when you say like, oh, the Blizzard, which is also Activision, right? Blizzard EA yeah. Activision. It's like the they they gave him up a nice call, and they're like, hey, hey, bud, like, can we have the source <laughs> go back? And he happily handed it over. Like, 
I, I don't yeah. know if there's like a like a, a a legalese letter that came with. Not to discredit the fact that this that he could have done something uh, illicit with it, but no, that's that's how I wanted to read the story too. I, I read it and I was like, this is cool, man. The guy really did a good thing. It was a good Samaritan. He found a thing. He gave it back to Blizzard. But then you read a little bit more, and he's like, the first thing he did was, how do I make money with this, guys? And everybody mm. on Reddit was like, you're about to not only not make money, but you're about to get in <laughs> trouble. So you know. It, it's good that he eventually was good, and I guess we would all be tempted. You know, you find something like this, you don't immediately think it's stolen property, and once he found out it was stolen property, he did the right thing. Yeah. So that's cool. Man, as, so, a, as a game developer, yeah. How, how, what's your take on this? I so like this. It's funny because I make video games um, and I program video games, uh, not as much anymore, but like on Hyperlight Drifter, uh, of the, the core of us that made the game, like I was a game designer and programmer. So I coded like half the game. That being said, I don't know like anything about computers or programming outside of a video game engine. Like comically, that's my bubble. Um, so I just kind of figure, I just assume when we released Hyperlight Drifter that people would be able to like reverse engineer it or they could get anything out of it that they wanted to. So when I when I saw the story I thought like is this special? Like StarCraft's <laughs> been out for I don't know 15 years, right? Like I just assumed someone would have uh like reverse engineered it or otherwise rebuilt it and you know also like a thing that we think about a lot in in indie games and smaller games is that games are like surprisingly easy to copy sometimes. Um, and cloning was a much bigger issue maybe a few years ago when uh, indie developers themselves weren't as visible. But um, yeah, man, I, I I just kind of felt like even if he tried to make money off of it, he couldn't because well, it's I, not I valuable. If, I wonder if this is a bigger deal because we just saw the original StarCraft remastered, and mm-hmm. I'm sure there's it's resting on old code. You know, there's a new coat of paint, but I'm sure a lot of the underlying code is is the same and. They did just make StarCraft free, so it is a free-to-play game, but it it has value for them still. It is still a game that is played competitively, and I'm sure, you know, if you have the original source code to a game that's being played in an esports scene, you can do some nefarious things and maybe create a version that people can cheat with. You know, all kinds of stuff that I necessarily Ooh. wouldn't foresee, but like I think StarCraft – at a poker <laughs> tournament, it's like you come in and you're like, I got my laptop ready, and you got a different source code that does like some turbo mode for your API. Yeah, you got I got three more zeros and two more ones and I'm going to throw them into the code. Uh, well, I mean like yeah, from, I, I just the, think it's different because it's th- this particular game perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And I would like I I'm probably not thinking through the nuance especially when it comes to the competitive community, but I mean like as a developer the other thing I think about is distribution, right? Which is even if like even if you got a copy of a game early, um even if you got a copy of the source code early before it even released, like you could you could leak it you could give it to to the piracy community for free, but mm-hmm. say say I was like I got a copy of StarCraft three or something uh, before it came out, and I was like I'm going to release StarCraft three instead. Like distribution is such an issue that um, you know even if you did something nefarious with it, it's like well you still have to solve all the problems that Blizzard has spent two decades solving in terms of like selling a product, right? Yeah. Well, didn't we see that with Half Life two? Remember that back in the day, Half Life two source code what came out before the game. And that was that whole, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a big deal back in whatever year that was. Uh, They, you know, somebody stole the source code from Valve and leaked it before the game was done. And they basically revealed that the game was way farther away from being done than they claimed it was (laughs) and all this craziness. So uh, Christian, what's your take on this? 
Yeah, I think he did the right thing. I always think it's interesting how a company responds to it. And, um, you know, like Teddy brought up, I hope that Activision Blizzard was actually a, a good guy about it because it does seem like, while after he received the, or, you know, figured out what he had, he looked into making money off of it. Um, it doesn't appear to be, based on what I've read of this, that he like set out to do this. You know, I've been hunting for this source code. <laughs> like, it wasn't uh, a, a national treasure for or whatever that <laughs> where he's out running. Like, yeah. okay, I got to pull Abraham Lincoln's nodes, and then I get the source code. It was weird that the the source code for StarCraft was on the back of the Declaration of Independence. I just thought that was <laughs> such a strange place for it. But actually, the second copy, the the other copy on Partridge that was found in the UK, is where it was located, which is <laughs> just is- yeah. Like, even if you could go back and play StarCraft with the Founding Fathers, like, the, the version was so much older. There have been so many patches that you're playing a different game at that point. Like, you're just not going to be yeah. playing. Well, I argue that's the only version to play, that that version is infallible and made by the smartest people ever, and it should never be amended or changed. Um, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I think you did the that's right a, thing. That's actually a really funny idea. I think instead of patches, they should just be called amendments now. <laughs> you know? I just downloaded the latest amendment to my game. Anyway, like we're not fixing it, we're just agree. updating it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I mean, he did the right thing. Uh, I'm glad that he's getting rewarded with some stuff, and I'm glad that it didn't get escalated into something annoying. But I think oftentimes when you find something valuable, like when you go to these estate sales or you know whatever, that's what you're hoping for. And when you find a, a long-lost Monet and something like that, like, I mean, come on, it was probably stolen at some point, right? Like, that's that's how this stuff has worked, unfortunately. I'm I sorry that, I'm laughing. I <laughs> like, I hope that happens as game developers start to die. And I don't mean that in a, a morbid way, but like, it's a fairly young industry, right? So at this point, when we lose someone, when someone passes away in the game development community, it's a big deal because we only are starting to have like people who we consider to be part of, I guess, like the the direct lineage of video games who are like elderly, you know, yeah. but but like getting anyway to pull out of that dark dive, um, like more and more estate sales that might involve stuff like that, like right. source code for early games. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, it might be interesting to see when that happens. I got a um, reason to start ripping CDs again. Yeah, there I'm you burning, go. I'm gonna burn all my games onto discs so that when I die, well, you better have the sweetest vault of source code ever in your. Uh, <laughs> so, like, 80 years from now, when you kick it, Teddy, some kid's gonna find the mother load. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's an iOmega disc? <laughs> <laughs> Christian, how about you? What do you got for your story of the week? Uh, Oculus news: Facebook has officially, or is officially, closing, or I believe the word they use, winding down. Uh, the Oculus Story Studio, which uh, they kind of announced, I think, three years ago. And then two years ago, they started rolling out some of the things that they were self-funded, some of the VR shorts lost, which I thought was incredible. It was the first thing I showed people when I booted up my Oculus. It's kind of, um, you know, the big robot in the forest, little little short. Um, Henry, Deer, Angelica, which also was fantastic. And I think, what's that? I was just sighing in agreement your angelica is amazing yeah it's yeah it's 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 phenomenal and facebook talked about how they wanted to inspire other filmmakers and get a new generation of storytellers to invest in vr and i applauded that i think you know if you believe in something you spend some of your own money to show its potential and what it can do but i'm curious now jeff in your opinion or teddy someone making games like, what does this signal when they're winding it down? Facebook is arguing it's because they want to spend less money internally and more supporting external people creating this content. But is this a a, a tap on, on the nail on the coffin, just a little tippy tap? Or is this something else altogether? 
Well, from my perspective, I, I think it is um, it, it's a bummer, especially because these projects were so beautiful and really showed the power of the medium. Uh, Henry, I mean, it's a it's it's amazing. All of these things that they did, they're really transportive and beautiful. But I think they realize that these kinds of experiences aren't the kinds of experiences that get people to invest in the hardware. They're non-interactive. You're just standing there and you're looking around you and seeing it happen. And I think they're just reallocating resources. And as much as that sucks for the people that worked there and the projects that were coming out of there were were really amazing – uh, I'm hoping that that means that they're just doubling down on interactive entertainment and allowing the non-interactive stuff to be, uh, you know, handled by other people. Mm, yeah, Eddie, I mean, do you have a perspective? I do. I mean, I've spent some time in larger studio environments. I was a designer at uh, Microsoft and, and at Disney as well. And to me, this absolutely, like, it doesn't telegraph uh, anything about VR in general or, or storytelling in VR in general. It's just like... Uh, you got a company like Oculus that has the funding that it does. It's been purchased by Facebook. Those people are way more expensive um, as developers to be making like creative content and companies that juggle both, like, like for example, Microsoft um, pay that, you know, pay pay people very, very well to make a a platform that has to be very sturdy and that has to, is going to exist for hopefully a very long time Um, and internal development, just the costs are much higher and the risk is a lot higher. So it makes a lot of sense for them to uh, let external developers do that uh, and try to support them as well because it, like any platform, you need to get third-party developers on board or it's going gonna, it's gonna to die out. So my, my read on it would be like, yeah, they're just, you know, you've got like an internal Oculus employee who's going to cost you uh, uh, like five times more than what an indie developer who's messing around with Oculus stuff needs to survive. And that's just going to be the reality for a while until the user base gets bigger. Yeah. Well, we certainly hope that the there are still projects that are as beautiful as the ones that these guys made. And I'm, I'm sure that's a lot of talent that's going to be uh, put back into the marketplace. Well, hopefully those guys get jobs. Uh, my story of the week, guys, is Darksiders 3! We didn't oh, even... Shit. 3! Like, you, come on. This is a win for Jeff Kanata. You've been talking about your wishes and hopes and dreams for, like, three weeks in a row, and then wham! Darksiders 3! Uh, I mean, literally, like, two weeks in a row, I brought up Darksiders as this underappreciated franchise. And then out of nowhere, Darksiders 3 is announced... Uh, it's being made by Gunfire Games. This is the development team that made Kronos on Oculus. Speaking of Oculus games, uh, which is awesome, third-person RPG game in VR. So I think it's in good hands. They also handled the um, the remaster of Darksiders 2, so they're familiar with the franchise. Not only did they release well, – evidently this started as a leak early in the week, uh, a leak on Amazon, uh, Amazon listing. But they sort of, I guess, either – had already planned to release everything or just doubled down on revealing it now because not only did they release a cinematic trailer announcing the game, which shows that it is, uh, you know, the third horseman of the apocalypse. We got the first two games each had their own horsemen of the apocalypse, war and oh, what was the other one? I can't remember. Uh, but now we have Fury, which is this female, uh, redheaded, uh, awesome chick who uh, has this whip as her main weapon, this kind of red braided whip thing. Um, and not only did they show that, but then they followed it up with 15 minutes of pre-alpha in-game footage, which 
looks really, really hot. I, I'm so excited for Darksiders 3. Um, will probably be a big game at E3. It's not coming out this year. It is a 2018 release. But, Teddy, are you a Darksiders fan? Did you get excited for this uh, announcement? I, I played the first one. Uh, I haven't followed it as closely. Like, I'm wondering, because um, to me, Darksiders has always been pitched as like a maybe if you like Zelda-like games in 3D, but you want something darker. Is that right. fair to say? Like Jeff, it you, is absolutely you, fair to say. You're a Zelda. Are you a Breath of the a Breath of the Zelda player? I am a Breath of the Zelda player. I'm also a, a all the Zeldas player. And and for the longest time, I kept saying, why can't we get a uh, HD Zelda? Why can't we get a Zelda on a system that makes it look really great? And then mm-hmm. Darksiders came out, and that was that game, and uh, that's why I loved it so much. Do you feel like your expectations are higher now post uh, Breath of the Wild? Well, I hope. I mean. I don't suspect that they go that direction with it because Breath of the Wild is such a departure from the classic Zelda formula. And I still like the classic Zelda formula. Um, Mm. One of the things they talk about in the developer interview for Darksiders 3 is this Swiss cheese development, which means that, you know, you're walking around, you can kind of see holes in the environment to areas that you can't get to yet because you don't have the cool thing that gets you to that area, Mm. which is how, you know, Zelda and Metroid always were. It's like, oh, look over there. Once I get the you know, cool item, I'll be able to get to that place, but I can't get there yet. But oh, that's a fun little carrot on a stick. And I really dig that kind of play. So I'm, I'm hoping it's more classic Zelda than it is Breath of the Wild. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like I'm curious. And, and it's funny because I sort of I stopped playing a lot of those types of games when we started Hyperlight Development uh, because I don't know. And there reaches a point where like you don't want any more input. You don't want any more sure. like stuff going on in your head and when you're making a zelda-like game and someone's like hey we're like three months from done but a zelda-like game came out i'm like i just don't want to know <laughs> like right let's finish this and i'll get back into it so i'll be curious uh yeah I, I mean i i i'm super excited for this and um what was i mean i don't want to go too far on a tangent here but what were some of the challenges of creating a zelda-like game were, were you pulled to make it more like zelda or were you resisting it being a full-on you know I mean, Hyperlight is very different from Zelda, but did you feel – was that like a, a primary place in your mind as you were making it? Yeah, we tried to go like um, Link to the Past Zelda or original Zelda in terms of influences because the series kind of took a took a turn with the 3Ds. You know, and a lot of people are saying Breath of the Wild is a return to form, return to those originals um, yeah. like Hyperlight Drifter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's available on PS4, Steam, and Xbox. Um <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, like for us, I think the biggest challenge was as a team in general was probably just pacing out a world like that, like doing a um, like it's not quite an open world game. Uh, Zelda, the original Zeldas were like open in the sense that you could go all over them. But the, the, the verbs of what has become like a GTA like open world game are very, very different. Um, so just trying to find a way to structure it and to make it feel like you have choices all the time, but you're not going to get lost to make navigation, not a nightmare in an open space is really tough. Well, you guys knocked it out of the park. I mean, Hyperlight is such a, such an awesome experience and really carves out its own niche in that genre. It's, um, it's awesome. We're big fans of it. Let me, let me ask you a question. So did they, with Darksiders, do you know if they started by saying there's going to be five and each one's going to be one of the horsemen of the apocalypse or four rather? Well, I think there were designs, uh, you know, Joe Madera, the comic book artist designed the first two games. Uh, it doesn't sound like he's on this one, but I think they, that was the overall 
plan for a franchise was, hey, each game is going to be a different horseman and they're related to each other. And I guess this third one takes place concurrently with the events of the second one. So death is off doing his own thing and and uh, your brother is war. And so it's all overlapping. But uh, I think that was, yeah, I think that was the sort of loose roadmap for the series. So like death, cool. war, fury, like is the third, is the fourth one like the wacky one, like doc? Pestilence. Yeah. Pestilence is the, is, is going to be just wacky. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just Magneto not knowing why he's doing what he's doing. Um, <laughs> really falls apart when he enters. Christian, did you see any of this gameplay footage? I did. I'm optimistic. I'm curious um, if it's going to be more one or two. I know that they, you know, they talked. It seemed like some of the stuff was implying it'd be more one than two. But that chain whip really looks like, like every time I feel like with Darksiders, it's that balance of it's God of War meets Zelda. And some people say it's too much combat. It's not enough exploration. Oh, it's too much exploration. They lead you with Darksiders one with that first hour or, or whatever with 30 minutes of of combat. And then that wasn't what the rest of the game uh, kind of provided and so i'm curious with this game how they kind of strike that balance because that chain whip thing i mean that looks awesome right that was like bushido blade back in the day uh that's god of war that's every awesome action game you've ever played where you have an awesome chain whip <laughs> yeah um so i'm curious how they're going to you know strike that balance because the traditional zelda game and even breath of the wild now well there are certainly combat challenges in the game it's not um, combat heavy in the way that a God of War or a, you know that a, a pure action game is. Right. And so I'm curious with this game with Fury being the protagonist, how how combat heavy it's going to be. Well, based on that 15 minutes that they showed, the answer is very, very combat. right. But that's because exploration. I don't know how good a trailer shows of you like going to a wall and being like, "Can I double jump? Can I double jump? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't quite double jump." Right. Um, I want to bring up one last story before we move on. It's another feel-good story. It just made hit me in the feels, and so I just want to mention it. Uh, did you guys see the story about this speedrunner breaking the Super Mario 64 speedrunning record? Yeah. So, little context. This is awesome. Evidently, on May 5th, this guy Cheese, who is this well-known uh, speedrunner for Super Mario 64, has been trying to hack away at this this record. This is... There are several different speedrunning records. One of them is the comprehensive 120 stars record for Super Mario 64, which is 100% basically. You're getting all the stars in the game. It's the hardest thing to do is to get every single star in the game. And up to this point, it's kind of been like the four-minute mile where people said, oh, it's impossible for a human being to get faster than or four minutes. Or the two-hour marathon for a more recent running. Yeah, uh, okay. It, it, so this 100 minutes – has been this benchmark of like, it doesn't seem like anybody can get below a hundred minutes to get 120 stars in super Mario 64. It's we've hit the upper limit of what it takes. And this guy has been hacking away and hacking away at it. He was on a live Twitch stream on May 5th and he did it in one hour, 39 minutes and 57 seconds. So three seconds below that hundred minute mark. And it is – I watched uh, the last few minutes of, of this this stream uh, archived. I urge you guys to do so as well. It will make you feel so awesome. He immediately starts crying. His grandma comes in the room and <laughs> she's like, look what I did, grandma. And she gets so excited. She starts like giving him a back rub as he's crying and she's like – his little sister comes in and gives him a big hug. It's just it, amazing. It, 
it's a skill-based speed run, which is different. Not that all speed runs require skill, but this particular speed run, it's, I mean, you're playing Mozart's every symphony with all of your limbs, right? <laughs> like well, it's very thing, precise. It's not jumping and glitching the same way that some of the others are. Right. It is, yeah, that's a great point to make. It is all pure skill. And the crazy thing about this in particular, first of all, is more people have tried to do speed runs of Mario 64 than any game in the world. It has the most logged speed run mm-hmm. attempts than any other game. So more people are trying it, first of all. Second of all, he beat a record of a guy who literally just set the record like two weeks before. And oh. thirdly, the hardest part of doing this is right at the end. So you're like an hour and 30 invested into a speed run and you've done everything perfectly, which if you watch any of this, the just the navigation of the environment is an insane amount of skill. But then you get to the Bowser fight and the Bowser fight is you have to grab him by the tail, spin him around and throw him into bombs three times. And you have to do it perfectly because if you miss throwing him into the bomb, you lose like 15 full seconds of game time. You're screwed. And that's right at the end. And you have to grab him, spin him around and throw him. And you can't, it has to be like frame perfect. So that happens right at the end. So you've done, you've invested so much time in doing everything perfectly up to that point. And if you mess that up, you're done. And he nails it and gets breaks the record. It's just, it's cool. That's so cool. Like, I love that the pacing is like that. I remember I, I started getting into speedruns a couple years ago. And one of the first ones someone showed me was one of the world record breaks for, it was either Ocarina of Time or Twilight Princess. But that was one where I'm watching it. And like maybe 45 minutes or 30 minutes before the end, the guy is crying. He's like tearing up and he's like getting all emotional. And I was like, why is he crying? And my friend was like, well, he knows that he's beaten the record already. Like everything else for the next 45 minutes, unless he like falls asleep, <laughs> is, is a cakewalk. That's wild. And like it's super cool. That he the did the hard thing. Yeah. 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 But then this, yeah, this one's right at the end. And oh man, it's great. It's worth watching. I highly recommend checking it out. Um, all right, let's move on now. We got a big playlist. We got lots of stuff to talk about. But first, we do need to thank our first sponsor, which is Gamefly. And speaking of playlists, if you want your playlist to be robust and full of games and you don't want to spend a fortune to do it, Gamefly is your jam. You need to know about it. It lets you save money and play more games because it is a game and now movie rental service. You can get games sent right to your house. There's no late fees. You can keep a game as long as you want. Finish it should you choose, and then send it back. No late fees, no shipping costs, no nothing. In fact, Christian, I know the reason that you played Prey this week is because you use Gamefly, right? That is true. I had to pray just to make it today. That's why I prayed. Pray, yeah, Gamefly, I got it a day after it came out, put it in, played, 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 stopped playing, and sent it back. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that more, but, but I mean, that's, that's the way you're able to play many of the games that you talk about on this show, right? Is you use Gamefly, you supplement the games that you're buying with games that you're renting and you're able to get games right as they release. And they have over 9,000 titles to choose from. So new releases, old releases, and, uh, it's a way for you to play games and not have to spend a fortune, right? I've been a subscriber for many years, well before they think they even thought about sponsoring this show. And I've been very pleased with the services why i keep paying money for it (laughs) i'm paying my own money to get these games and play them keep up keep up keep up well if you want to try out gamefly we can give you a premium 30-day free trial just for listening to the show all you got to do is go to gamefly.com slash dlc you can start your free premium 30-day trial 
I said free multiple times there, I think. It's free. It's premium. The reason it's premium is because you get two games or movies at a time. And that's uh, unusual. You, you, there's other free trials where you get one, but because you're a listener of DLC and because you go to GameFly.com slash DLC, you get that premium two games. So try it out. GameFly.com slash DLC. Sign up, play more games, and spend less money. Oh my gosh, lots of stuff to talk about this week. Uh, Teddy, what is on your playlist? I'm so JRPG. It's great. Like, <laughs> How JRPG are you? <laughs> You're so JRPG and you don't even know it. You're, You're JRPG, so, man. It's like a series of insult jokes about it. You're so JRPG. <laughs> you might be JRPG if uh, you've been playing near and you discover that uh, Persona is a game within high school and near. Whoa, man, like I, so I'm like, I'm a childhood JRPG lover. That's like my thing. You know, it was enough to make me move to Canada to be working at Square Enix. Um, Wait, what? No, I'm just kidding. I love JRPGs. I love everything Japan. Okay. So I moved to Canada. Oh, <laughs> so like, uh, yeah, context. Uh, my life is like, uh, we finished Hyperlight Drifter and released it about a year ago. Um, I had already set up an arrangement for my next project, which was me moving to Montreal and becoming creative director at Square Enix Montreal. So I moved to Canada because I love JRPGs. Uh, at least that's a part of it, right? <laughs> um, I'm just going to simplify it for the purposes of this segment. Um, <laughs> but like, so I haven't been actually an uh, active JRPG player for a long time. Like there have been no modern JRPGs that have really gotten me um, because uh, I don't know. I just felt like the the genre lost its way. And at most, I would be playing old games. Like, I do a charity event once a year called Square Bowl, where we play, like, a Square Enix old JRPG, and we speedrun it all weekend, and it's great. Um, but, like, in the last, like, I don't know, six months, I've gotten Final Fantasy fifteen, which I dig, uh, Persona 5, which I'm currently starting and I'm intimidated by, and Nier. And Nier is, like, my game of the year already. Like, there's just no way. There's just no way any other game is going to... Gonna oh, I gotta play it, man. So I know it's good. it's on sale on Amazon right now, like twenty five percent off, and I was like hovering over the buy button. Um, I, I gotta play that game. So like, yeah, um, Near Automata is the sequel to Near, which is like a sort of a cult classic, I guess you could say, from PS one or PS two era. Um, and it's just like the the lore is bonkers. You can watch like wrap up videos if you want to just like get some backstory, but you don't need it. The thing about Near that I keep saying, and I'm gonna say Near a lot. Is that, um, and that's N I E R for anyone who's uh, not familiar, is that like a lot of games you'd be like, oh, this is cool. Um, this game is really fun, whatever. Like, I think Nier is important. I think Nier does like new things in so many areas and it's innovating in like really loud ways in terms of like the aesthetics and the clarity. story. O- yeah. OG Nier or new Nier? New Nier. Or both. Nier Automata, not both. Um, the new Nier Automata is like super important because it's innovating in ways that people are talking about. Like the, it's just visually really beautiful and it's a really nice clean package. But also, it's doing all the stuff in the background that's like so important for game making. And I'm like just borderline forcing my team to all play it at Square. <laughs> so can we surface some of that background stuff that maybe, yeah, you know, hypothetically I uh, haven't noticed. <laughs> Um, when, I love the game, but I'm curious what, you know, what... In a world where I don't get what you're talking about. I mean, it's not the world we live in, but maybe I just don't understand. I mean, 
maybe it's our listeners, maybe it's me, one of the two. <laughs> Let's uh, say I unplugged my console while the game was running because I didn't like it so much. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. I've been trying to get Jeff to play it since uh, since launch, and he, every week he says next week. <laughs> I'm going to play it, and then get, games keep coming out, So, but I'm going to play it. So, like, um, like Christian, like, how – I'm, I'm going to try to avoid spoilers with this game, but, like, how far into it are you? Um, uh, duh, 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 duh. Uh, what's the best way to answer that question? I've seen a couple of endings. Um, some okay. are very abridged. Some are, are not. Um, uh, I've not seen all of them. Um, I have so a good like, handle on the game. <laughs> I would say, like, something that I would surface um, – uh, in terms of the, the way this game is designed for the long run, because like JRPGs are long, like uh, every Persona game is like a minimum eighty hours. Uh, I always was a Final Fantasy player, and those tend to be like minimum forty, minimum thirty five forty. Um, but like a JRPG or a lot of like big games have to be designed for the long game. Like it's fun, it's fun right away, but it's going to keep you engaged. You're not just going to be kind of like grinding through the same old combat forever and ever and ever to to get through the story and i think um you'll hear some criticisms about near because the combat can feel a little just mashy like uh, it's not it doesn't always ask a lot of you and sometimes it feels a little uh, a little dry but like in the long game near evolves like near evolves in so many ways and it really organically i think opens up uh, new types of gameplay new angles on the gameplay as you get deeper into it in a way that for example final fantasy 13 tried to do in a more forced way um and I can do this comparison because they're both Square Enix games, so I don't get in any trouble for, for critiquing one of the other. Like, <laughs> 13 did this thing where people would tell you, yo, this game gets really fun after about 20 hours. Like, after about 20 hours, they introduce, they unlock this new depth to the combat system, and now it gets interesting. And I just feel like uh, what Nier does is, it, it on a rolling basis, will introduce new things, and it'll discard stuff you've been doing for 10 hours. It'll be like, all right, you've been dealing with this for a while, just don't deal with it anymore, we're going to handle it for you, and you can focus on this new stuff. That's so interesting. And I don't know if this necessarily ties into that, but what I love about so much about the game, one, I enjoy its combat. I, I like that style. You know, I talk about my love for God of War and that action style of combat. I think it, it plays well, but even at the beginning of the game, the way it lets you know up top, whereas some other JRPGs or longer games kind of don't, it doesn't show you everything it does, but in that first hour, it lets you know that this isn't just, uh, an action combat game. Like it's, it's a shmup. It's a side scroller. It's, uh, you know, go on various quests in a village and it gives you all of this stuff and then layers into it in a way that fits within the narrative. Like to me, that's what blew me away initially was all of the little things of even as simple as saving your game. It's not just saving your game. Like you're literally uploading your consciousness. Like you're saving your game in the world, which doesn't need to happen because it's a video game. We understand you save your game or you upgrade your Laura Croft gets upgraded in uh rise of the tomb Raider. Like, what? It doesn't make sense, but it's a, an amazing game. One of my favorite games of this generation. But in this game, they have all of that video game stuff in it in Nier, uh, but it also makes sense in the world. And then from a narrative standpoint, it starts making you question whether or not that's good. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Yeah, I, I actually really strongly dislike replaying games i don't like new game plus i actually argued to keep it out of hyperlight drifter but people people like it that it's in but f- for me like i like when a game lets me go it says hey game's over like stop like you did it move on with your life and go you know go outside or play another game or whatever um 
And I think it's important to say as a, as a uh, very yelling, adamant proponent for this game that um, someone told me before I played Nier that, oh, there's multiple endings, like you're going to play it again. Uh, and that turned me off because I was like, I don't want to do that. That sounds like work. This sounds like the, the things right. I don't like about JRPGs. But um, uh, like Christian is saying, like it's very self-aware and it knows when it's asking you to kind of replay. It's not really a new game plus in the traditional thing. Like it keeps giving you a new experience in a different unexpected way. And it's it's just very like very very carefully done we had a question a couple of weeks on by i clicked on by guys (laughs) while you were talking talking, i clicked on by go ahead or what platform uh ps4 it's on sale for for amazon nice but should i play it on pc is it better on pc i i don't know if i was gonna ask i don't know if the pc version is uh is fully patched i know it launched a little a little with a few issues ps4 i haven't had problems with it yeah ps4 was the launch platform as far as i know i think uh yeah a little while after but probably the same uh, but Teddy, so we had a question, I think maybe it was last week, a couple of weeks ago about that multiple ending thing. And I'm curious, you know, I think Nier does do it differently, but it does still, um, air quote bother me. It does not, it's not the worst thing in the world, but the idea of that I haven't seen the good ending or the real ending or the best ending it, as, as a developer or when you're plotting out a game is that to some extent, I think that's a great hook to keep people, you know, your most hardcore engaged. But the flip side of that coin, I think is you're kind of punishing or, you know, disrespecting your quote unquote average gamer, even your more casual gamer that, oh, well, yeah, you beat it, but (laughs) you didn't really beat it. I mean, is there a, is there a right way to do it? Or is it just kind of every game is a little different? I, so I guess there are like maybe three approaches to this. Um, I agree with you. I'm not a fan of good ending, bad ending, middle ending. Like if you beat it well, you get a a objectively more interesting, uh, more well-produced ending. Like I, I find that to be a gotcha. I think um, as as a maker of modern games, uh, respect of people's time is really, really important to me. So how long a game is like, I, I generally as a player will not play anything for more than 10 or 15 hours. Um, Nier was an exception for me, um, but that's where I've stopped in most long games. So that is one way to do it. I'm a little bit more cool with like different endings, as long as they're not layered in the way you're talking about in like the, oh, you're not lead enough. Like you didn't talk to that guy on disc one 20 hours ago. And so you missed the good ending. That yeah. stuff really bugs me. Um, I will say about Nier, again, in a way that it approaches it differently, is that there are many, many endings. Like, I I, I don't know the number, but it's like... I think there's 26. That sounds about right. It's like a one for every letter of the alphabet, and then there might be like one or two extra, extra ones, but I think it was something like that tied to the alphabet. The the endings that are built into like the core of what it means to have the, the Nier Automata experience, um, <laughs> are you can't miss them. Like, you just can't. Um, so it's not a game that punishes you for not finding that stuff. I'm, I'm quite sure that the extra stuff is really, really cool. But for, for example, like I've only really gotten the core endings and then a couple other things accidentally. So it's not the sort of game that you're going to go 10, 15 hours into and be like, oh crap, I'm well on my way to a bad ending. I'm curious if you say that you haven't, you don't play things more than 10 or 15 hours, but you're also playing Persona 5. Because I feel like 10 or 15 hours is you just finished the tutorial. I've got a lot of people like uh, to to call back to the um, that Mario 64 speed run. Like I got a lot of people like rubbing my shoulders on this one. Uh, <laughs> a lot of grandmas coming in rubbing my shoulders. That's what we all <laughs> so, need, man. Because that's like I have never played a Persona all the way through because I found the dungeons to be boring. And I, I'm told that like this one does it better. Um 
I, to be fair, I have not gotten 15 hours into Persona, Persona 5. So that's the point at which like I'm looking forward to getting because my first impressions are already like, oh, like the stuff I really, really love about this game, but it's not as complete a package to me as Nier is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't get 15 hours into it either because I got like eight hours into it and people are like, yeah, you're just about <laughs> to get to the to the part where you actually have some agency and you could do things on your own. You're not just clicking through story. And I'm like, really? I, I ain't nobody got time for that. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I respect persona. It just did not grab me and other things came along. And, and I, I feel like I invested solid time into this game. If it did not grab me by now, I know it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, you, you have to watch season one of Buffy mm. before it's really good. It's like, well, I, I don't have 10 hours of my life to, to just kind of throw away to get to the good stuff. It's, it's yeah. hard for me to push past that. Well, it's harder now because there's so much other good stuff. I mean, yeah. you want to use the TV example, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I could watch the wire or the shield that is great from the gun and incredible all the way through. Or, you know, you could play near or, uh, did you play rise of the tomb Raider or did you play uncharted four yet? Or, you know, like, there I like are all you these said things. now. And then you pick two shows from like 15 years ago. No, that's, that's the point though. <laughs> that's the point is that they already exist. And if you haven't watched right. them, you know that they're great from the get go and they're still available to you. You don't need yeah. to wait for reruns. You can start it now, right. which I think it makes people less interested in jumping on board with a new show or a new game when backlogs are what they are and they still exist and they're still great experiences. So it's, do you dive into Mass Effect Andromeda, which, you know, isn't maybe great from the gun and is maybe going to be patched and blah, blah, blah. Or you can go play Final Fantasy 15 that you know kind of everything about and Chapter 13 is fixed now. And so it, it's just it's a different world than I think when we were growing up where TV shows you had to wait for summer reruns if you were going to catch it again. And three games came out in a year. So if it wasn't right. good for the first eight hours, well, you're going to play it because you had nothing else to play. <laughs> like You're going to yeah. get to the good stuff. Well, and also like uh, smaller games are viable for developers. Like if you talk about independent games and things like that, it's not only that you have so many options, but if you're thinking about diving into a game like Persona that's going to ask 80 hours of you, you're like, yeah, or I could play 40 games. I could play 40 small games in the time I'm going to play Persona. And I know yeah. like that is not how you're supposed to judge experiences. And I will like always say like value of anything, games included, should not be judged based on time, right? But like... I'm thinking about that now because I've, I've just gotten into Persona and I'm already kind of like, ooh, intimidated by it. And the next few things on my like to playlist are short. Like I could sit down and play them in a few hours in a night. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. Like what remains of Edith Finch? I played it in a sitting and I was like, that is one of the best experiences I've ever had. And I just, I sat down, I played through the whole thing and I finished it. I, and that it was very valuable to me, you know? And I do this thing on my other show on Anchor, um, on newest, latest, best every Monday, I do the games that are coming out this week. Right. And every week there's some amazing indie games that I'm like, oh, how am I going to carve out time to play that gem that I know is going to be brilliant and wonderful, but is also solid amount of time that it's just, it, there, it's, you know, first world problems, it's abundance <laughs> of riches, all that stuff, but it, it's true. It's like it, time is the currency that you have to choose to spend. Yeah, I mean, I just played, like, after Nier, I took a, 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 a nice sauna visit and took a relaxing trip to everything and played oh, everything. Isn't that great? It's so nice. And I got this experience in, like, I don't know, maybe one night, like, four hours or something that, like, 
kind of encouraged me to think about the world a little differently. And I felt really good after playing it. Um, and that's a hard thing to follow up with long experiences. I think it's worth diving into yeah. those. And I, I've been guilty of playing like only small games for too long and missing out on the like crazy, like the incredible craft that goes into huge games. Yeah, I had the same experience with everything. It like hit me in just the right evening where I was feeling depressed. And it's like, oh, no, there's hope and joy in the world. And it, it was beautiful and perfect for that moment. Uh, let me ask you this question to talk, loop it back around to JRPGs. As a fan, as somebody that, you know, are, is playing all of these back to back, it does Nier and Persona 5 and Final Fantasy 15. Does that trifecta feel like we are moving JRPGs back into the mainstream? Is that... Do you think that they have found a new rhythm or is there still something that needs to happen with that genre to revitalize it and make it feel more modern? Huh. I mean, I, I, I think just going subjectively, right? Like there is a kind of an idea I have of what the Japanese game industry looks like, what JRPGs look like that started to blur together. And I think each of these games did a really good job of finding its own like aesthetic niche mm-hmm. of being like, this game is different because this, right? Like when Final Fantasy 15 was doing its pre-release like hype, it was like, Oh, it's like, it's just like a road trip with some guys. And like, say what you will about the, some of the, some of the less awesome parts of it, but like they're driving around in a car. And that's, that's like the story of why this is different. And right. Nier has like, uh, it's just this bonkers, like androids, they wear blindfolds and like the, the, the fashion of it is super cool. And the, the visuals are very unexpected for a JRPG and persona five is admittedly kind of in the thread of persona, but things like the style they put into the menus and stuff like they're, they're finding ways to refresh what a lot of people would say was kind of a stagnant, uh, area of development that like Japanese development, uh, so there, to a lot of studios like own admission, like a lot of companies in Japan were like, we're falling behind. We we're not innovating in the way we want to. And I'm hoping that this surge is not just luck, right? That it doesn't happen to be these few games that, that pop up that are all outliers. Yeah. Well, it's, it is interesting that you have games like Persona 5 and Final Fantasy 15 that have each been in development for so long and then both hit within weeks of each other. You know, yeah. that's that's pretty crazy confluence of events. But I can't wait to play another series of great JRPGs in seven more years. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Um, let's talk a little bit about Prey uh, because it's the big release last Friday. And I put a bunch of hours into it. I'm probably around 10 hours, maybe a little shy of 10 hours into Prey, uh, which is, you know, uh, evidently this is a 30 some odd hour experience. So I'm still relatively early, but I think I have played enough of it to have a, a real good sense of, of the game. And Christian, I know uh, you alluded to it before during our sponsor read that you only played about an hour, right? Yeah, smidge over an hour. I I, uh, I bounced off fairly quickly. I, I'm you know happy to go into that a little more, but I'm curious to hear kind of your take, and then I can maybe pepper in, or you can tell maybe if you want me to say why I bounced off, yeah. and you can pe- say why I'm wrong. Do that. I like saying uh, how you're wrong. That's more fun. <laughs> I thought the game like opened opened very strongly, like with a very cool aesthetic, great music, um, 
you know, art direction or graphic design, all of that stuff. I, I sat down and I was just like, here we go. I was very, very excited to play the game. Uh, I was aware of it getting good reviews. Um, also, I'm going to be as spoiler free as possible. I just so people listen, if you want to know nothing about it, obviously I'm talking about the game, but uh, I'm not very far into it and I will be as spoiler free as possible. Well, let me let me actually speak to that because it, we have a thread on our subreddit. Uh, let me find it here so I can credit the right person. Um, this is, uh, Sir Dityon on, on, on our subreddit specifically asked if we could be especially diligent with avoiding spoilers on prey when we talk about it this episode. And I respect that. I'm certainly one who respects spoilers. There is no way to talk about this game at all without spoiling a, a little bit because something happens literally in the first half an hour of, of the game that is kind of a, a reveal. It, every piece of advertising for this game has kind of shown beyond that first half hour. But if you really don't want to hear anything about Prey, let's just say skip ahead uh, a few minutes um, because we're, we're, we have to be able to talk a little bit about it. We're, right. We'll there... avoid big story spoilers, but there is some stuff very early on in the game that we just have to talk about. So I will just right. shout Prey every 30 seconds. <laughs> so if people are skipping forward, they'll know that we've passed it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that plan. I would argue that in most uh, stories, the inciting incident can never be a spoiler uh, because that is the jumping off point for the story. But I understand uh, where you're coming from. But yes, the, the, it could be argued that in this instance, the inciting incident is something that you do not know uh, when you first boot up the game. Uh, but there are several other drops and we will not talk about those. So for me, you know, it loaded. It was very cool. Uh, I like the aesthetic. I like the graphic design. I like everything about the game. And I started playing it, and it very much has that um, arcane graphical graphic style. Um, you know, if if you like Dishonored and some of the other stuff that's that kind of come out, it, it 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 the character models look like that. But it's it's fun seeing that in a clean modern world versus you know a rat infested uh, you know medieval style or um, industrial revolution style universe. And it's less stylized. It's less cartoony than Dishonored is. A little, a little, but I mean, perhaps one is a caricature and the other is a caricature. <laughs> um, but for me, why I bounced off very quickly was in um, the the combat was just um, atrocious in the sense that you are expected to melee uh, fast moving objects on the ground, and it, it, nothing about it felt fun. Uh, and no way did I find that rewarding. You're unlocking. You, I've unlocked a couple of um, uh, perks or uh, skills. We'll just call it a skill tree, um, and and progress that way. And it didn't feel satisfying in how I would use those things or the way that it um, changed the core element that would be a repeatable part of the game. And then the story itself, while I expect to maybe have be interesting and, and play out in a, in a somewhat um, cool way with some cool drops and reveals along the way, felt very been there. And I know that they kind of advertise it as a spiritual successor to System Shock, um, in the way or to Bioshock. And to me, as someone who's played, you know, arguably far too many games. 
I felt like I was just playing the same thing again and that I wasn't ready to play. I wasn't hungry for this type of game. Without knowing what happens, I feel like I'm set in a world with an unreliable narrator in a dystopian future where everything went sideways and my character is forced to follow this one thing to progress only to find out that what he or she has been doing the whole time has been misguided and they were part of the problem from the get-go. Isn't the world so horrible? And look at your hand in it. How can this character be redeemed? What a hero's journey. By the way, the combat's not fun and the movement speed feels off. So for me, with a plethora of other things that I enjoyed, I decided to bounce from the game. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I think um, there's there's stuff in there that I agree with, um, and we'll loop around back to that. But I want to talk about what, what the theme, the game does right, because a lot of stuff in the game is very, very good. The world that you're exploring, yes, very much Bioshock, very much System Shock, very much Dead Space. Uh, it, it is very reminiscent of those experiences, but those are great experiences. I mean, those are very good games. And so just because it's a little redundant doesn't necessarily invalidate it for me uh, because what it's doing in that very defined context is top notch. Which I get. Like I could play Tomb Raider and Uncharted and God of War games forever. You know, right. it's just like if it's your genre, you love it. Like I totally get that. And the exploration of that of that world, you you eventually find yourself on this space station and you have complete access – not complete access. You, you have to open up areas. But you have complete open world uh, wandering around ability in, in the space station. And there is a lot of really cool stuff to be discovered. It is It is very densely packed with secret passageways and hidden emails and fun stuff. And the way that they do – progression in this game is very clever. You're never earning experience points. Killing a monster doesn't really help you except that you can get things from its corpse. And the way you level up the the skill tree that Christian mentioned is by getting these things called neuromods, which is an item in the game world. It's an item that the game developers can give you a whole number of ways. You can find it just laying around. You can find it inside things. Computer terminals that you access can dispense them. You can craft them from materials. So it, it much like uh, Dead Space used to do, it allows the exploration to reward you in actual progression of your character. So because I searched that cool thing or because I got that ability to lift heavy objects and I lifted that heavy object and found the little cubby that was hidden back there, I actually get more – Skill points rather than just, you know, oh, I found ammo or whatever. And I I think that is very satisfying. It's very satisfying to be able to like actually get something super valuable to the progression of your character that way. And how they handle uh, all the crafting in the game is so cool. You actually find these machines that do all the crafting and it's so physical. You're plunking stuff into the machine and you're turning it on and it's plunking stuff out and it's all – objects that you're grabbing in the world and because it's physical because it's not just a menu system because you're actually pushing buttons and making things it really is very cool it's it feels very satisfying to to make stuff so all of the things that you are doing in the game discovering areas finding new routes there is uh you you eventually find ways to actually leave the the space station and go out into zero gravity and there's no real um, fast travel in this open world, 
except that you can find these shortcuts. Like you can go out in zero gravity and just go around the side of, of an area and go in the, you know, the, the escape hatch to get around this, the labyrinth inside, but you have to first unlock that airlock from the inside. So you eventually, by visiting a place the first time, you eventually get what is kind of the equivalent to fast travel. Although I kind of wish there was actual fast travel, but it's neat. You know, it's neat to like circumvent something that you went through one time by going out into space and like using your suit to propel you around in zero G. That's really awesome. And you find all these cool connections between places and all of that stuff is is neat. Great for that, right? Like what is that's arcane is incredible at that with designing uh i can't even imagine looking at the map for this entire game or the play space where even in dishonored 2 and some of these games the intricacies and of the the world and then with the systems upon it in the same way that breath of the wild but different in that breath of the wild is physics based often but this idea of this world that seems so linear or one-dimensional when you realize the mechanics the game is giving you how it changes everything and it's just incredibly deep play space I mean, that's that's their hallmark, it seems like, at least through these two games. That's yeah, so and, hard. And, Sorry, like, from a development point of view, I mean, uh, Jeff, you were asking about Hyperlight, and I was talking about making the world, and that was something that we tried to do, and we did a little bit, but we, we pulled back when we realized how absurdly hard it is to create, like, shortcuts and uh, little pieces that connect to each other, especially, especially if your world is, like, 3D and kind of persistent and the space is all realistic. Like, right. In our game, like it, we we followed the uh, like length of the past and original Zelda model, which is like once you go through a passageway, we just teleport you to a new place. So it's a representation of a real space, but it's fake. But a right. game like that, or like Dark Souls, in the way that they have a space where like what you're talking about is like someone, some level designer is like, oh, I need to add a hallway to this part of the combat because I need like a longer a longer strip here uh, for this part of the sp- station. And then somebody else goes, oh, but that makes like. The shortcut that we built where you go out of this hatch and you go to this other hatch, like that makes that longer too. And there's all these ramifications for anything you want to do. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, 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 there's no cheat, right? It's all a physical space. So if if you go from point A to point B around the side, it has to actually exist in the same, you know, same physical relationship to the interior space. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's really cool. And they've done a great job of that, and it feels really fun to explore that world. And there's a lot of neat story stuff to find. All the emails are really interesting. And you're constantly, like, finding secret codes and key cards to things that allow you to get into undiscovered places. All of that is so great that it makes every time, literally every time I deal with an enemy in this game, so disappointing. (laughs) And I completely agree with you, Christian. I I have gotten – I mean you have not gotten to a point where you get some powers. Like you eventually get powers that relate to some of the aliens that you get. And there's a whole wonderful little push and pull mechanic of having to scan them to then get their powers. So once you find an enemy that could kill you and all of the enemies in this game can easily kill you. There's no wimpy enemies. Um, You – you are tempted to not attack them. You're tempted to try to scan them first so that you can get some of their cool data and upgrade your powers. And that's a fun push and pull, except the fact that then once you engage in combat with the enemies, I just did not enjoy it ever. I don't think the enemies are particularly well designed. There's a really fun concept of this mimic. That's kind of the, you know, the, the showpiece of prey, which is, 
that the mimic can be any object in the game world and it's not scripted. It's all AI. Like the mimic can become a mug. It's sitting on a table or it can become a chair or whatever. And it often does. And the sound design of the game is very much a horror game. So when the mimic becomes a mimic again, it goes, you know, and it, it is a game that constantly is making me feel on edge and anxious, which is not a feeling I enjoy. I know others do. I just don't, I don't like that feeling. I want to enjoy the exploration of the world and finding cool stuff. And I don't want to constantly be worried that that mug is going to leap at me, especially with the sound effect that it makes at the same time. Well, I think what's hard about that, just to pause here for a second, is that because it's unscripted, for me, I'd hear that sound effect, but I wouldn't ever see, like, the mimic would run away. Like, I wouldn't see it because right. I was I was busy doing something else. Like, I was lifting a briefcase or a bookshelf to reach back and, and find something to unlock to see if I could find a shortcut through an air vent or whatever. And it's like, Wah! and I'd be like, huh? And I'd turn around and I'd look around and there'd be nothing there as this thing's scattering clear on the other side of the space station. And so and at some, some point... People, some people would say that that's a victory, right? That's a That's a cool feeling to be like oh i don't know when it's real and when it isn't i think that is a failure of sound design i really do because there's Did a lot of times play? when there's a thing behind a door that can't even get to you but the music is like shini, 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 shini. <laughs> you're like and you're just wandering around like reading emails in this room and there's a mo- monster behind the door that it's like shini, 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 you know <laughs> that happened to me in alien isolation do you guys play that yeah yeah um, it's a game another game i had to stop playing because i was like i can't do this to my heart yeah, yeah, I had to play it in a room with about 20 people, but um, no joke. Like, they had the same thing. They had music cues when the alien was getting closer, and the music would just get super intense, and there were some times where it must have, like, crawled through a ceiling vent that didn't have an opening, so it couldn't get at me, but it was technically really close to me for a while. And it, Like, that feels like, A, it's, it's kind of cool, because you're always looking over your shoulder, and, like, uh, you can hear something getting more intense, but, yeah, when you get those false positives like that, it's it yeah. you, you see the seams. Yeah, it's cool to a point, and like I think a, a scripted false positive is awesome, right? Because that builds tension. I think that's something that Resident Evil Seven did very well, where it would have these moments where it would lead you up to this thing. And it's all horror movies, right? It's this, the, what horror and comedy share in common is the release of tension. So they build it up, and you got to pop it in some form or fashion. And sometimes the way you pop it is with a false sense of security after rising tension, so that then you're on edge even in you know any moment. But in in this game and others like it, where I feel like it's uh, an unscripted false positive. It gets to the point where I would tar- start to disregard all of it. And when it did happen, then because I also then didn't enjoy the combat, I would just be like, come on. Now you're going to show up? Really? Hit, 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 hit. Ugh. And it became it became a drag for me personally. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think I'm enjoying the game a lot more than you because... Well, clearly. <laughs> I mean, I quit playing it. Yeah. Um, I... I I just wish that these games would be secure in being science fiction games without feeling the need to be science fiction horror games. And I know there's a lot of people that dig that. There's a lot of people that like Dead Space. Dead Space was another game where I'm like, the sci-fi concepts are so rad. Why does it have to be horror also? It's not just because of my nerves. That is a large part of it. But also it's like this weird compulsion to constantly give you something to shoot every five seconds. And – this is a game that has such interesting weapons and powers. I don't need to be given a shotgun. Like, not every game has to have a shotgun, you know? I, it just feels so reductive. And it's like, oh, blast the enemy. Oh, we're worried we didn't give you something to blast soon enough. It's like, have enough confidence with your game that I'm enjoying just exploring the environment and and figuring stuff out. Like, that is really 
fun. And you're just ruining it by making these things jump out and scare me and me shoot them with a shotgun. That is a hard thing, I think, for developers to, to get behind, and especially when they know they're making a game for a certain audience, is the thought of, like, can we remove that stuff? Like, uh, I know um, the the team that does, uh, like, Naughty Dog, that does the Uncharted games, have to deal with this balance all the time, because they're this cinematic game that arguably tries to pull people in with the storytelling and with the, the, the moments of drama that are not all the shooting, but they know that they have to play to a certain certain player base. And I think it's scary as a developer to be like, are players going to be cool with this empty space? Like we don't want them to be bored. Like there's yeah. this, there's this panic that happens and you really have to, to trust players to like take in the atmosphere that you're talking about. I think. And doesn't, I think, isn't breath of the wild such a confident game in that respect that, yeah, there's lots of enemies to de- deal with, but it feels like the developers pushed past that feeling and said, it's okay to just let people walk along a a, a plane or just climb a mountain that it's okay to just allow there to be breath in the wild rather than just wild everywhere. <laughs> you know, yeah, I see what you did. Yeah, no, I like, I agree. I, I admittedly have not played a lot of breath of the wild, but what I have is like it, it, it trusts the players. It trusts, it trusts its own work. And I think that's right. the thing you have to trust that like you've done the work in the sound design and the art department that like that stuff can live on its own. It needs, it needs the game mechanics, but it, to, to bring it all together sometimes, but you can let that stuff uh, breathe. Yeah, uh, I we are just reiterating what Sam Palavin said in the uh, chat a few minutes ago. He said, "Pray rarely gives you a moment to breathe." I think that is the the thing. It, it is such a fun world, and uh, it makes me disappointed. But I'm I'm still playing it and still digging enough of it, and and still hooked by the central mystery of of you know who to trust and what's going on. That uh, I'll keep at it. What are you playing on? PlayStation Four. Yeah, that's what oh, I no, no, no. played I'm on. Sorry, uh, Xbox One. Oh. I'm playing on Xbox One. Okay, people. I'm playing. I was playing on PS4. People in the chat had said that it has known control issues on the PlayStation 4, and Arcane said they're aware of it. They'd fix it, but apparently nothing. So maybe that was part of my problem with it feeling not great. Also, was that, and I don't know. I haven't done any, but this is coming up in the chat. People saying the PS4 issue might PS4 version might have some control issues. Yeah, no, I, Xbox One. I was first time I turned on my Xbox One, and I can't even tell you how long, but. Uh, uh, all right christian uh let's move through your playlist as well i know you've been playing a lot more mario kart 8 deluxe i love that game it is uh beautiful i've played three player couch co-op with my wife and oldest daughter and what i wanted to talk about with that is just playing the game with a four and a half year old is such a a really great experience or any young kid for me this is the first time i'm doing it personally where you know i find myself as a jaded gamer so to speak or whatever and i take things for granted this is a mario kart game it's a re-release of the excellent wii u mario kart game um but i'm playing with my daughter and we're playing on these tracks that i've raved about before i did a whole at least 20 more minutes about why i love the tracks in this game um but we're zooming around the course and she's like whoa we're underwater dad i'm flying now and it's like it's the joy of a child seeing these things for her for the first time that as an experienced kart racer or video game person like yeah there's an ice level there's a snow level there's a whatever but i think oftentimes we as older gamers say oh why does it always have to be that oh this again that again but you realize and as i am seeing firsthand now that this is someone's first experience with all of those and just like i loved the first time i saw mario slip slide around on the first ice planet way back when she is like every time the glider comes out and we fly for a little bit she's squealing with excitement it's just 
it's it's mind blowing to her, right? That this car turns into a submarine and into a hang glider, and every time it ha- she picks the courses that have more of that, she's learned like four of her favorites that have big jumps, and it's it's really cool. Uh, and I know other people have probably talked about this, but like every comedian talks about airplane food because it's their first time having it. This is my first time having that that couch co op experience. But something I wanted to ask because when we had I knew we were gonna have Teddy on. Is the idea of, um, and I'm stealing this from the CAD cast, uh, uh, GPD and uh, Shipwreck had an interesting discussion about Mario Kart 8, and they raised some um, problems with the game, uh, and I, I hadn't, hadn't thought of them, and I think it's interesting, and they talked about how the game hasn't progressed much from the original Mario Kart, where it's still this traditional race four tracks, unlock that Grand Prix, you know, progression through the game. And then when a deluxe version comes out, much like the ultimate fighting, ultimate game, ultimate edition of a fighting game, when all the characters are already unlocked and the corpses are unlocked, um, what is to keep people playing? So Teddy, whether or not you've played Mario Kart 8 deluxe or not, my, my question more generally is, uh, and just, you know, in your experiences and expertise in, in game design with a very traditional style of gameplay progression, when do you look to update that? Maybe the way Nintendo did with Breath of the Wild, or when does it need to be the same? Because that's what Mario Kart is, or could Mario Kart be Forza Horizon, uh, this open world <laughs> type of thing where you know you're zooming in and out of races, or is it always just here are these Grand Prix play because you love the course? Like, what is that? How do you update something that's so historic but give it a new hook for people yeah. that maybe have played it for thirty years? Yeah, I mean, like, I think Nintendo is such a specific example, and I think that maybe you can't apply this, like what I'm about to say, to to all video games, but Nintendo's done so many things right early on um, that often people talk about return to form. You know, we were just talking about Zelda and how, like, oh, the the Zelda series tried to evolve and should have just stuck to what it did because it was so beautiful, and, like, you need to update that uh, visually and expand the world, but but it's got something right. And I, I think... What's interesting when it pertains to video games and the fact that our our medium is getting uh, older and so our fan bases are getting broader is that like developers just pick. It's like, are you going to if you've got this long running series, are you going to age with your players, or are you going to be this thing that everyone experiences at the same age? And I, like I often hear Pokemon discussed in this regard that like people age out of Pokemon. Some people love them and will always play the new ones because it has this nostalgia to it, but they can kind of feel themselves aging beyond it. And Pokemon as a series not super evolving. Uh, pun intended, uh, <laughs> be, because it's fine. Like it, it works. And everyone who is, you know, whatever the golden age is for that series somewhere, like, I don't know, 12, eight, 14, like they'll all get to play that. And it doesn't need to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, because it just, there's, there's enough work for it to do in coming up with a new setting and, and, and updating it visually and technically right. like, you know, and I think Mario is Mario Kart's one of those games. Like I, I still go back and I play, uh, Mario Kart 64 because um, it holds up. You're saying it's only old because you're old, right? Yeah. Basically. Well, I mean, it's Christian new, used it's the word new j- if it's new to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you Christian used the word jaded and it's almost, it's it's not even that. It's just like, well, you've played it before and you're human and sometimes people are, are yeah. encouraged to want new things. And so for us, it's like, well, maybe this isn't made for us as much because we've been playing it before. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of an if it ain't broke, don't fix it and and no need to force a change on something. I think if, if it doesn't, if it isn't organic, um, 
So I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not a Mario Kart player, so I can't speak to that game specifically, but I think it's an interesting idea to consider. I think it's interesting, like, what would make you one, right? Like, the, the core mechanics of the game, the is, racing. Does it make it burnout? Well, that's what people in the chat are saying, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe that is. And would it be interesting to do that? And it it's like I'm of both sides of the coin right now, right? Like, as a gamer that I love this game, but I would love maybe a little more um, incentive to keep playing solo to unlock things other than just here's this trophy, congrats, you got first or whatever. We didn't rubber band you with a blue shell right as you were crossing the finish line at 200 CC. Um, And, and, you know, that aspect of it. But then having those moments, like Teddy was saying, it's your first experience with it. Watching my daughter have her first experience with it where she's not dying for the narrative hook as to why Tanuki Mario needs to you know defeat the the flower cup or or whatever reason it is it's she, i'm like what do you want to do next and she's like is there a fire level and i'm like yeah there is and she's like <laughs> we're gonna race that one <laughs> and that's all it is um it's interesting i just think it's interesting yeah, it is it is uh we are going quite long though so i'm gonna i'm gonna curb that discussion for now and i do need to thank our second sponsor which is casper uh if you're staying up late playing games on your couch. Uh, you don't want to fall asleep on your couch. It's going to be uncomfortable. You need a mattress. You need a, a comfortable night's sleep. And chances are the mattress you're on right now is probably past its prime. I know that I waited way too long to update my mattress. And I started getting back aches and weird neck things. And I didn't even put two and two together and realize that it was the mattress I was sleeping on. Ma- uh, Casper makes it easy. You don't have to go into a big mattress warehouse store and get pressured by a salesperson and try to make a decision in five minutes by laying on something briefly and going, oh, that sounds, that feels good. Casper is, solves all of that. It reduces cost because it's direct over the internet to you. And it raises the quality level. They have an in-house team of engineers that spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress, has supportive memory foam. It's got just the right sink, just the right bounce. And it uses a breathable design to help keep you cool and moderate your temperature throughout the night. Plus, it's easy to buy it online. You can just get it sent directly to your house. Shipping is free. It comes in a really cool container. You un, uh, you open it up and unfolds. I got one. Uh, it was really cool. Like you get it in this, in this uh, folded state and you, it gives you this cool little uh, knife thingy that you unlock it with and slice it open and it just pops open and it inflates by itself. You don't have to do anything. And then you have this awesome mattress. It's so convenient. Best of all, you get a hundred nights to try it out. You don't have to make a decision quickly. You can try it for 100 nights risk-free. So if at any point during that 100 nights you decide it's not for you, Casper comes back to your house and they pick it up. No questions asked. Easy peasy. And uh, with over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Free shipping to the U.S. and Canada, plus... Because you listen to us, we're going to give you 50 bucks off. All you got to do is go to casper.com slash DLC. Use the promo code DLC when you check out and you get 50 bucks off your mattress. Upgrade, feel better, sleep longer, have a better life. Casper.com slash DLC. Use that promo code DLC. Just enough time for a quick VR segment this week. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Nog, which I've been playing on PlayStation VR, G-N-O-G. It's the new Double Fine game that came out this week, and it's delightful. 
It is delightful on every level. If you haven't heard about this game, Nog is a puzzle game where you are physically manipulating these little boxes, these weird boxes that have knobs and diodes and little faces and little characters and fronts and backs, and you can rotate them in 3D space, and you can fiddle with stuff and press things and slide sliders, and it's kind of a just a fun little mystery box, and each one is themed uh, differently. One, you know, there's like a submarine, and there's a boom box, and there's all kinds of weird themes. And you're just kind of figuring out how things relate to other things, what the switch does, what the button makes happen, and how you flip open that little side compartment, and you pull out a plug and plug it into another part, and it, all of them are very enigmatic little puzzles that are about you physically manipulating these boxes. And then invariably they'll open up new hatches and you'll see something that was inside the box and something will fall out of the box and you'll play with that and it'll move and there'll be a little creature. Just wonderful, delightful little mysteries hidden inside boxes. I mean, what is more pleasurable than finding something hidden inside a little box that you uncover by figuring out how to unlock it. And it's just that over and over and over again. And because it's in virtual reality on PlayStation VR, it's also playable in 2D, but I've been playing it exclusively on PlayStation VR. But because it's in that environment, when something unlocks or something comes tumbling out of the box, it is in 3D space in your face or it envelops you in sound and light and magic. You know, a rainbow will come pouring out of the box and it'll go over your head and behind you or a frog will come leaping out or the music will ramp up and then there's a light show all around you because of some wonderful little thing that you figured out that that switch does. When you flip it around back, you push this other thing it's just all doing that over and over and over again, and it is such great fun. I highly recommend it. That's so cool. I, I'm I'm really excited that this just came out and that you're playing it now because Nog is actually a Montreal game. Uh, the studio co-op that made it uh, is based here, and I was oh, is that just so? yeah, I was just talking with them about it because uh, they were at my home like two days ago. Um, and what I love about Nog as an example of VR, and like disclaimer, I don't I don't own a personal VR yet. All my VRs have been like at the studio where I try things when people want me to play them but for developers as vr has been coming up in the last few years there's kind of this panic or not panic but uh, excitement and also uh worry over like what is this new platform like we don't understand it it's all new everything we know is wrong like how are we going to do game design or interaction design for vr and what's cool about nog is like this is one of those games that is uh what we're realizing is just some games we've been making for a while just should have been on VR in the first place. <laughs> I love that. You know, like, and, and the thing is like Nog has been on and off in development for, for a long time. I want to say like, uh, I actually asked uh, Salim who runs the studio, I think six years or something um, on and off. Cause they were, they're a small studio. So they have to like take on other projects so they can get paid so they can keep making their passion project, which is what Nog is. And um, yeah, it's like when they started this, it was not a VR game. It was just a game. And then when they realized they could do it for PlayStation VR, they were like, oh, yeah, this is what we were making. <laughs> I love that. See, and I think this kind of speaks to what we were talking about before with my criticism of Prey, which is one of the things I love about VR is that it enables this feeling of being able to slow things down a little bit and relax into experiences because simply the the feeling of being in a place is already 
entertaining. And because of the limitations of VR right now, which is, you, you know, it's harder to kind of move fast and be kinetic, the kinds of games that work best allow for a slower pace and sort of you can just sort of sit in a thing and it doesn't have that weird impatient ADD feeling of like, oh, we better throw a, a, a monster jumping out of a cup every four seconds or somebody's going to get bored because just fiddling with this box in 3D space you know, in, in a virtual environment in Nog is joyful. It's a joyful experience to just be in that place and do something slowly. Yeah, I mean, I think in games, we think a lot, so much about verbs. Like, what are you going to do? What are the mechanics? Like, how are you going to interact with this? We call it interactive design, you know? Um, and and I think what you're talking about in VR is like, oh, this platform emphasizes the other pieces of that sentence. Like, what are you interacting with? Or where are you when you're doing it? That like, you can, like people spend so much energy and money just to travel to a different place, just to be there. Yeah. And yeah. VR gives you like a, you know, a closer experience at this point to, to that parts of it, even before you get into the interaction. And like, there's not as much requirement, there's not as much pressure on what you're talking about on like the, the verbs of running and shooting and jumping. I, uh, at the end of this episode, you'll hear an interview that I did with, uh, Ian Dallas from, uh, Giant Sparrow about what remains of Edith Finch. Mm-hmm. And the one question that I kicked myself for forgetting to ask him in that interview is if they ever considered making that game in VR, because I feel like it would work so well in VR. Um, but I love, I love that perspective, Teddy, that you bring, uh, which is that a lot of these games that people have been wanting to make is like, oh, we were making a VR game all along. We just didn't know it yet. That's so mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. I mean, there's games um, where like it, it makes sense to, to be behind a controller. And then there's other ones where it's like, yeah, we've just, we've like, we've been crippled and now this is the solution. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, Christian, did you have anything you wanted to bring up? Um, I'm just hopeful that Farpoint is great. That's the next one that's on my radar. And that's next week. I feel like it went into slumber and I haven't heard or seen much about it, but it was impressive at uh, E3 and I am not going to get the big gun attachment for it. I'm hoping that it's playable without that. But to me, that's the next big, you know, that's the next big AAA PSVR title. And after that, I don't know if there is another one coming down the pipe. So I hope it's great and I hope it's a hit because I love I love the platform when it works well. Well, you know, this week, uh, a new Jeff Minter game came out exclusive to PSVR. You know, he's the guy behind Space Giraffe and uh, Tempest 2000. Um, he, he's a visionary guy, and I'm, I'm interested to try that. So there's, there's stuff trickling out that might not be getting as much press as it deserves, but um, lots, of, lots of cool VR things. And, and people, don't, don't sleep on Nog. Even if you don't have VR, give it a shot because it's, uh, it's just one of those games, kind of like what we were talking about with everything, where it just makes you feel good when you play it. It makes you feel really good. That's Nog with a G, by the way. Yeah, G-N-O-G. All right, uh, let's uh, move on to... Uh, we have somebody that plays tabletop games, so you know we need to pl- do a little bit of tabletop time. Tabletop time, tabletop time. Right now, right now. Teddy, I'm so pleased that you are here to talk tabletop time, um, especially because... It seems like the games that you're bringing up, I'm not even very familiar with. And I love that, finding out uh, an entire company of games that I, I just don't even know about. Cool. Yeah, I'm super glad. It's, I mean, I think this is, it's appropriate because I normally don't like tabletop games. So I'm like a person who's, who has a lot to say about tabletop as someone who's kind of um, rolled out of them as a, a plaything. And that's, that's because for me, uh, tabletop games, board games, like the, the ones you sit down for a few hours and play, um, 
in my world of like I hang out with a lot of game design nerds uh gets like really we get really deep into just talking about the game and all the different rules and like that's fascinating but uh I just want to sit around and like hang out with my friends you know and like to so to me the simpler the game is uh the quicker we can just get into the point which is like we want to to uh, drink things and eat things and talk about our lives and so a designer who works at square with me uh has been importing these games from Japan from a company called Oink Games that are um they're really beautifully designed they all have these like particular graphic designs to these boxes that are all like the size of like if you ever order business cards from from like a business card company they come in like a certain size box they're mm-hmm. like these little like handholdy you can carry them around easily and um they're just so quick to learn and teach and play and you, and he has like 20 of them. So I think Oink is owned by the designer. It's it's probably like a very very small company. It's probably like one one dude or a few people. Um but I've been playing one of their games called Startups, which is like uh you play an entrepreneur in a capitalist society and uh there's different businesses that are all like themed in 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 cute different ways and you are trying to be the person who makes the most money by getting a monopoly on something and then charging people who want to use it. And they're all just like uh, games where they make a few components and then everything mixes differently every time you play. So it's like from very small things are these like vastly different experiences. Hmm. Um, There's one about pro wrestling too, which I love. Oh, I'm in. It's super cool. It's like, uh, it's like, have you ever played um, like bridge or spades or hearts? Um, Yeah. These card games with Trump suits. Um, uh, there's a game called Mask Man by Oink that is like uh, every time you play, there are different color wrestlers. And depending on who plays a card in what order, um, it determines which wrestlers are stronger than other wrestlers. So it's not just picking, okay, which Trump, which suit uh, in a regular card deck is going to be the Trump suit, but here are eight suits. What is the exact order of them going to be? And so that's like slowly changing because I know, okay, red guy is stronger than orange guy and yellow guy is stronger than blue guy. But is yellow guy stronger than red guy? We don't know. And so eventually you create this lineup of like the strength order of the wrestlers, but it, but it takes the course of the game. And all of these are games you can play in, I I, I sound like I'm totally uh, selling these games, but I swear to God, I don't even know the developers. Um, They're playable in like 15 minutes which is like my my threshold for wanting to kind of have a loop and then be able to get up and take a break well micro games have become a a real trend in in just the last couple of years i i'm really um ashamed that i didn't know about oink games this is a o i n k games uh you can find them at uh oink gms.com and uh, the games you mentioned are Startups and Mask Man, but there's a whole bunch of them. There's a the, the whole, and it looks like there's some iOS versions of their games too on that website. Yeah, they're like they're game makers that make me feel bad about myself because you look at that list and I'm like, how did they make 20 games and then release them? <laughs> it's a, uh, and they're all designed in ways like you can buy them. And I think like the designer at my studio has a bunch of these games, and they they look really nice together as a yeah. set. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I don't know how it's all the prices are listed in yen. So I don't know if, if they'll ship to the United States, but, uh, or Canada in your case. Uh, but I, I want to, this is pretty cool, man. I am not aware of these games. Deep Sea Adventure, Nine Tiles, uh, Twins. Uh, yeah, I just group. played, I just played Deep Sea Adventure too, because he's got all of them. That one is like, 
uh, you're all in a submarine and you're diving down together and it's sort of cooperative but competitive because you share the same oxygen source. And every time oh, wow. someone every time someone picks up a treasure, it means that they use more oxygen every turn. And anyone who doesn't make it back to the submarine before the oxygen runs out dies and doesn't get their treasure. So you're all grabbing your own treasure and there's kind of like the like a dilemma of, well, if I grab more treasure, I'll be richer, but I might kill us all. <laughs> ah, the old push your luck. Uh, per Ryson in the chat, yeah, startups, deep sea adventure, the pyramids deadline, the fake artist goes to New York. Uh, there are yeah. several mask men there on Amazon. If oh, you are, great. Uh, so easier so way. They're to get all a about twenty two bucks. Uh, yeah, I've never heard of these. This is so rad. The thing that I love about tabletop in general, but uh, these games in particular, it, it seems having not played any of them, but hearing you describe them, it. I love how this medium in particular allows like a pure expression of an idea. It's like, here is, here's one idea for a game. We, we can make it. It's short. It's quick. It's just one thing. And a lot of the tabletop games that I particularly like are these, you know, multi hour, really dense, deep strategic games that have tons of ideas in them. But when you find something that is, that is such a pure expression of just one quick idea it is really joyful and really fun it's something you can bring with you on a you know on a trip and you can just pull it out and say hey anybody want to play this i, I talked about happy salmon a while back and is, is, is a game like that it's silly and wacky and weird but um these games look really cool i mean it reminds me of like the card game or board game version of uh, space team which is an ios game i played for yes. a long time yes where it's like perfect for just teaching a bunch of people in about five minutes and then playing like super fun to do right Awesome. I also played a, a Japanese game. We had uh, International Tabletop Day this week, um, so we had to have tabletop time on the show. Um, and uh, I play the new TMG game, uh, Yokohama, which is another Japanese-designed game. It's from the guy that did Trains with a Z. Um, and man, that is a in, an intense... Uh, it's kind of a worker placement, but it's more worker movement game where you place your workers and then they can move from tile to tile in very specific ways. Um, it's, it's, uh, and, and if you look at a picture of Yokohama, you'll be like, I, I, my brain just broke. Cause it, it, hmm. the graphic design is very intense. It's very intense. Um, but it actually isn't not that complicated. And the, and the game is, is relatively easy to teach. It's just one of those games where every square that you move on and, and all of the tiles in the game are freestanding so different numbers of players has different a different constitution of the tiles and every time you play they're in a different place so you're you're constituting the game board fresh every time you play it so it's never the same which is cool wow. that's replayability I'm, I'm looking at a picture jeff and you're right my brain just broke right it, it looks <laughs> very intimidating it's one of those things where it's like hey guys want to play a friendly game it's like no that looks like math that <laughs> looks yeah. hard uh but and 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 I think it could have used a clearer graphical design or at least maybe a little more fun with it. I mean, the idea of the game is that you're, it's set in, I don't know, the 1800s or something like that in Yokohama and your fishing village and you're doing all this stuff. It's a very loose theme. It's a European style mechanics foremost, right? You're creating a, an engine to create points. Um, but the game is very fun and um, a really cool version of that. So I, I liked it a lot. Um, hmm. I'm compelled. Yeah, 
it's, 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 it seems like you have to kind of like do the work, right? You have to like get fluent with what this game looks like. Well, the the tough part it. is is each like I was starting to say that each of those tiles is uh, its own has an action that you can do. So you have to learn what each of the tiles does. So in teaching the game, it's like okay, we have about fifteen things to get through <laughs> before we can start. <laughs> this tile does this. This tile does that. You know, so um, that can be a little bit of a challenge. But once you, it's one of those games where you can sort of start. And just pick that up as you go and like, okay, well, if I move here, what, what can I do? It's like, okay, well, let me tell you that now. Um, mm. But, uh, but very cool game. All right. Let's uh, thank our, our last sponsor, which this is not just a, a sponsor. This is a full on warning. Mother's Day is this coming weekend. Be warned. I'm here to save you. If you haven't been thinking about it, your mother is a saint. And how dare you not think about Mother's Day? But guess what? I got your back, guys. I got your back because Bloom That is going to save you money and delight your mom with some beautiful flowers for Mother's Day. Your mom, maybe you have a wife who's a mom. Mother's Day is the time to what I like to call Operation Retain Mom's Love. And it's very important that she feels all of the love that you definitely feel for her during the year heightened on that day. We often send flowers. That's what we do. And if you're like me, sadly, you go online and you just click on whatever random ad for whatever random stupid uh, name of a, of a flower delivery service you've heard before. Chances are those big conglomerate flower companies are going to do you wrong. And if you've ever had this experience of Clicking on a thing where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to spend, I'll spend about $60 on a, on a flowers. Okay. Look, $59.99. That's a good flower. It looks beautiful. Look at that vase. Okay. That one you click on it and then you get to check out and it's like $115. Like what, what, how did we get to 150? I just clicked on the $60 one. Not that my mom is not worth $115. It's just, there's hidden fees everywhere on those places. Worse than that. Sometimes because they get their flowers from overseas and they bulk buy, hidden in their uh, user agreement is the fact that they can sub out flowers that you think you're buying for flowers that they've got on hand. So if they are out of roses, they can put carnations. Bloom That never does that. Bloom That never has hidden fees. Bloom That has locally sourced flowers. They're fresher. They come in, have a lo- uh, they don't have to live on a boat for a week before they get to your mom. They will last longer. It's so convenient to buy them. They have a higher value. There's no waste. They're not old flowers that are picked weeks ago. And oftentimes, you know, you don't even know that your mom got crappy flowers that died within a couple of days and weren't the ones that you bought because you tell your mom and you're like, did you get my flowers? She's like, yes, I love you. Thank you. She lies because she's a beautiful, wonderful saint that would never tell you that her flowers weren't that great. Don't make your mom lie. Get bloom that flowers. They're beautiful. They're fresh. Christian, we both got bouquets, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, technically, I didn't say that they were, I mean, it was for my wife. Um, oh, you're, you're whispering she, right now because she's around? Yeah. Gotta be, Jeff, don't ruin this for me, okay? Yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> Guess what? These flowers are gorgeous. They are gorgeous. They come in a designer vase that costs everybody else about 15 bucks. But because you listen to DLC, it's going to be free. You get a 
uh, a delightful assortment of caramel treats, normally 10 bucks, free because you listen to DLC. All you got to do is go to bloomthat.com slash DLC, B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T dot com slash DLC, and you'll get this wonderful deal. You'll get these bloom, these beautiful flowers. You'll save your mother's love for you and you'll feel good because they arrive so easily and so fresh and they're so great. Bloomthat.com slash DLC. Get your $25 value just because you listen to us by going to bloomthat.com slash DLC. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. Uh, we do have a parting gift coming up. And like I said, I have bonus content, an interview about uh, what remains of Edith Finch that I think you'll find very interesting. Um, but before we get there, I do need to thank Teddy D for being here. Thanks, Teddy. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people keep up with your stuff online? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. So Twitter, I'm Teddy Deef, T-E-D-D-Y-D-I-E-F. It's pretty much the place to yell at me at anything that I'm doing video game wise gets popped up on there. Very excited to find out what game you've been working on. I know you've been working on it for a while now. Um, any any be, clues, hints, or uh, it's uh, it's a it's a Square Enix video game. That is what we're making. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be secret for a little while. No, but I mean, yeah, we'll. we'll. No, 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 totally. no comment, but in the meantime, yeah, uh, if anybody wants to check out Hyperlight Drifter that hasn't, we are on Steam, we are on PlayStation 4, and we are on Xbox One. Awesome. Yeah, and Hyperlight Drifter is not to be missed. It is very, very cool. Um, I should mention, I know that this is yet another episode, two in a row, where we have not done quick questions. And I, this is after me saying people are going to get free games by sending us quick questions. So we got a ton of them. It will be back. It just, uh, we just ran long this week and I wanted to make sure we talked uh, tabletop and VR stuff. So keep those coming. You will definitely be getting your free game codes. Uh, if you, if your question gets picked, you can send those to dlcfeedback at gmail.com and they will be back. I promise. Um, Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? If you're listening live or today, Monday, when it comes out, I'm headlining uh, Lestat's Comedy Night in San Diego on Tuesday, May 9th at 9 p.m. It's at 3343 Adams Avenue in San Diego. Uh, Michael Monsoor and Josh Nelson and Dustin Nickerson will be there with me. It's an incredible show. It's the venue where I recorded both of my stand-up albums, Moment in Time and We're All Going to Die. And it's one of my one of my favorite places. So if you're in San Diego, that is Tuesday, May 9th. And then this is further out, but if you're in the UK, if you're in London, uh, I have three I have guest spots on three shows there. Uh, Thursday, June 22nd, I'm doing a spot on a show called Backyard Comedy or at a club, Backyard Comedy. Uh, Wednesday, June 28th. I don't know the exact details yet, but I'm doing my second show there. It's in cent- somewhere in central London. More information coming soon. And then Thursday, June 29th, I'm doing a spot on a show called The Blackout. And uh, I look forward to seeing people in London. So those are the, the UK shows. And then also, go play Hyperlight Drifter if you haven't. It's It's so good and the score is so great. And I'm only a little bitter that it never came out on Vita. But I still love the game enough that I will recommend it, even though my Vita promises were broken. Dude, it, it needs to come out on Switch is what needs to happen. Oh, God, we can, yeah. We can talk about platforms after the podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's such a good game. Uh, my stuff. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. You can also uh, listen to me talk video games every single day. I have a short form podcast daily on the Anchor app. That is at anchor.fm slash NLB for newest, latest, best. Uh, hope you check that out. Also, 
I talk movies and TV shows on the Slash Filmcast, which you can find at the Slash – no, there's no the – SlashFilmcast.com. And uh, I have We Have Concerns, which is a comedy science show three days a week. You can find that at WeHaveConcerns.com. It's a very good show. I can vouch for that show. Go check out oh. We Have Concerns. Thank you, Teddy. I appreciate that. It also never came out on Vita. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> need to talk true. about that. That's true. It does not. We, <laughs> we hate Vita over it. We have <laughs> All right, uh, let's uh, finish up the show now with our parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion of what to do this week. Give us a parting gift. This is your parting gift. Teddy, do you have a recommendation to help people get through their week? I do. And this is like, uh, I'm going to recommend a piece of music, but it's also kind of like the musician himself. Uh, there's an LA based electronic musician called Omniboy, who I've been listening to a lot. Uh, it's like O M N I B O I. Uh, and he's based in LA and he does like this really cool, like if you're into video gamey style things, but you don't really want chip tunes, like it's just something really sparkly and joyous about this kind of like, uh, electronic trap sort of fusion. He's got a lot of jazz in his music. But what I like about him, uh, in addition to his music on his SoundCloud, um, is that he's just kind of fun to follow everywhere. Like I also um, will watch his Instagram stories, which are more like him skateboarding around LA or like him working on music. So he shows his process really thoroughly. Uh, I think he just got sponsored by Yamaha because he's like a huge keyboardist. He has some videos that went viral where he's playing like six keyboards at once and he's looping them and he's building these loops live. I just want him to be like, in addition to like really enjoying his music, I kind of wa- like watching his his daily updates. So it's something that gets me through the week because he's always putting out something. That's awesome. Again, that's Omniboy, O-M-N-I-B-O-I. Yeah, you can find him on SoundCloud. I think he's also on Twitter. You can tell him I sent you on Twitter. Awesome. Christian, how about you? You got a parting gift? I was a huge fan of the first season of Master of None, and season two comes out this Friday, May 12th, and I'm might have seen some of it. I can't say that I saw it. Um, I think I can say that I saw it, but it's more fun to pretend like I can't say that I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that show. I love what it does. Um, I, I love how they tell, I think you talked, like you talked about in VR, it, it slows down. It takes a traditional kind of sitcom format, single cam format, but slows it down and doesn't really drive home a through line, but keeps you connected to the characters because they feel very real and you feel like you get to spend time with them. And I, I, I love, I love watching them figure things out. Master of None season two is May 12th on Netflix. We have a listener parting gift that was submitted to DLC feedback at gmail.com. This comes from Steven. He says, I have a parting gift recommendation, Sense8 on Netflix. With season two out on Netflix now, it's a great time to get into the show. The show is about a group of superheroes whose superpower is stronger empathy. They can feel what is going on with one another and have each other use the other's bodies through a strong telepathic, empathetic link. The show is also about loving your fellow man and how love can give you strength. That premise is layered on top of excellent action and suspense. I do believe you and the rest of the audience of DLC should give it a chance. Because in a year when we see an increase in hatred, it's nice to see a show that is in direct opposition to that. With a really positive message of not just fight, but fight for the right reasons. I personally think it is the best original show on Netflix and one of my favorite shows ever. Keep putting out great content and positivity into the world. Thanks, Stephen. That's Sense8 on Netflix. If you want to send us your own uh, parting gift, you can send it to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. 
I'm going to stick on the uh, streaming show tip and talk about Catastrophe Season 3, which is on Amazon Prime Streaming. Uh, Catastrophe is a darkly funny sitcom about two people that end up together after a one-night stand that results in a baby. Um, It is wickedly funny. I mean, very dark, very mean sometimes. And I'm not usually into mean, but for some reason there's, there's like this thread of love underneath it that really is charming and very, very funny. So I highly recommend that. Uh, Check it out. Season three starts literally the moment season two ended, which is really fun. So it's great for for, uh, binging as well. Catastrophe on Amazon. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star. Thanks to Teddy Deef and Christian Spicer for hanging out. Thanks to all of the folks in the chat room for also hanging out in real time and helping us make the show better. Uh, Thanks to all of you who downloaded the show. Remember, there is more content right now with bonus uh, and interview coming right at you. But we will be back next week with more show. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. So I'm joined now by Ian Dallas, the creative director of Giant Sparrow Games, uh, the developer that just released the game that I was uh, just absolutely in love with. Uh, I've I've been uh, talking about it every chance I can get. What Remains of Edith Finch, uh, which is, uh, I believe, your second game, right, after Unfinished Swan? Yes. What Remains of Edith Finch is uh, just an exquisite video game experience. Uh, Kudos to you guys for for making it. Um, It seems like a very personal project. Uh, Judging by the end credits, there is, uh, you know, some some real-life inspiration behind some of the things in that. Is, Is that true? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's definitely elements of my own childhood in the game. Like, you know, the the game takes place on Orcas Island in Washington State, and we tried to... Um, I mean, the game is about the sublime, right? Uh, but we tried to balance that with very intimate details. So there are things from my own life, but they're somewhat abstract. So they're things that, like, I remember about growing up in Washington State, like flying a kite on a beach or, you know, being on a swing set. Uh, there's like no specific characters, but there is hopefully like a general feel of, of what it feels like to, you know, be a child in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I should mention right at the top for listeners that we're going to talk freely about the game. So if you haven't played it, I urge you to do so. Uh, it's not a long experience. I, I actually really recommend people play it in one sitting uh, because that's what I did. And it was a really powerful experience. Um, but we're going to talk freely about the stuff that happens in the game and, you know, a lot of the game is about death, right? It's uh, actually reminded me a lot of the old HBO series Six Feet Under. Yeah. It started with a, a death every time. What was the sort of inspiration for just the, the pure premise of the game? Uh, so, so originally we were interested in the sublime, uh, like in moments that you experience in life that are simultaneously beautiful and unsettling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole game is just an attempt to create those kinds of moments and to have a game that, you know, where those things can kind of kind of be at peace and to give players, you know, like a a chance to uh, kind of go to those emotional peaks and then come back to it. Uh, And when we started looking for references for, you know, other works of art that had, uh, you know, kind of plumbed similar depths, uh, weird fiction was one of the kind of strongest 
some like references that we found, uh, which is a, a genre of literature from like mostly the 1930s, people like H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, but then going back a little farther, you know, people like Edgar Allan Poe or Neil Gaiman today are kind of in that kind of similar vein. Um, so, you know, we took a lot of cues from what made those stories so effective. And, you know, just the fact that they were short stories is also, you know, part of why this game is a collection of short stories that, you know, it's a very intense emotion and it helps to, you know, not have to sustain it too long to kind of get in quickly and then, and then get out. Yeah, no, it does definitely feel like a collection of short stories. And did, did you set about writing each of them individually or, or was there, you know, how, how did that come about? Is, did each have a, its own origin or were you trying to kind of compile this family's tale as a, in a grander sense? Each one was a little bit different. Uh, you know, generally we started from a very concrete, uh, like, interaction or feeling. Like, you know, in the case of Calvin's story, you know, which is like, what does it feel like to be on a swing set? Yeah. And then, you know, kind of worked from there and, um, you know, started building little prototypes and having people play them and, you know, just thinking about what does this feel like uh, and how is this going to end was a big question. Uh, Twilight Zone was another one of our, uh, you know, inspirations. And, you know, I think one of the things that makes the Twilight Zone so effective uh, is the endings for each of those stories, even though they're only you know 22 minutes long or whatever, they pack a lot into those final moments. So, you know, in terms of like how we created these stories, you know, it started from usually like an interaction or some like moment, uh, and then from there trying to figure out how this all might end. And then once we had those pieces, just from a strictly kind of mechanical interaction standpoint of like what is the player doing here. Uh, then we wrote stories that you know, kind of spoke to what the game already was about um, as much as we could. That's interesting. So coming at it from almost mechanics first, all of these stories land at such a dark place. Uh, I mean, it, it is beautiful and macabre at the same time. What, what is the message that, that you were trying to explore? Just that, that finality of, of death and, and our humanity, our fragility as humanity? as humans? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we were trying to do first and foremost was to create these sublime moments that uh, have this mix of emotions. You know, it's not entirely pleasant or unpleasant. It's, you know, kind of uh, you're uncomfortably in the middle of it. And I think once we'd done a couple of these uh, prototypes, like stories that we could then, you know, kind of play through all the way and, and had an idea of what the story was actually going to be for these things, uh, we kind of honed in on what I would consider the most Finchian kind of specific moment, uh, which is marching joyfully <laughs> to your end. Yeah. And I think Lewis's story does a pretty good job of that, uh, where, you know, the player understands that they need to keep moving forward and they want to keep moving forward, but that this is also going to have, you know, kind of dire irreversible mm -hmm. consequences and having the player be complicit in that uh, was a, you know, like a very interesting combination of emotions that was really powerful and felt like it was, you know, not something that we were forcing the player to experience, but that they themselves are kind of, they become aware of it 
right. while it's happening. And that lends it like a really interesting kind of power. Like it, it surprises people a little bit, but then it's also, you know, deeply mm-hmm. unsurprising that, you know, all these people are going to die. Like there's, there's a sense of joyful inevitability, <laughs> right. hopefully, which, you know, is something that once we discovered, um, and again, like none of this was something that we set out to put in the game, but after doing a few of these, we found these kind of like really nice moments. Uh, but once we had a sense of that's where we think, you know, the gold is or whatever, like we started digging there more aggressively and then adjusting future stories to kind of highlight, you know, and accentuate those sorts of moments that, you know, the player feels like they don't want to do this thing, but they also right. kind of do, uh, you know, and are, are complicit in It's that. interesting too, the the main character, I mean, the central conceit of the game, right, is that the main character is returning to her childhood home and kind of investigating all of these all these deaths within her family and finding out what the true story about, about them all is. But there's a, a distinct lack of judgment on her part too. And I think on the, on your part as game designers, uh, because I mean, there's a lot of questionable things that happen, you know, a, a person sort of living in the basement for, you know, his entire life and the family just kind of <laughs> covering it up or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness, but the game never really ventures into any kind of moral, sides on whether this is good or bad or, or sort of judging the family as a whole. Yeah. I think we, you know, are more interested in like, even though people describe the game now as, you know, a game, like a story game, a game about, you know, stories, uh, we're more interested in creating a space for players to think about interesting mm-hmm. things and situations uh, than we are in, you know, kind of delivering any profound message. Uh, so I think Edith is a good example of that. You know, as she's moving through the house, she doesn't, I mean, she kind of has a, she has a goal, right? I mean, she's trying to understand these things herself, but it's not like, you know, a manifesto that she's writing with a particular aim. She's genuinely right. curious about it. And, right. you know, hopefully that serves as kind of an analog to the player, you know, experiencing these things. And it's about kind of, what they do to you internally and like how you feel about them because all these things happened a long time ago. Like you're coming to them and they're, you know, not fresh. They're versions of events that you can never really know the truth of, you know, part of it is trying to decide, you know, what you think happened and also like what you wish had happened. Like how do you feel like all of this should have gone um, and just giving players a chance to kind of sit with those things, um, you know, was an important part. So Edith, you know, we tried not to have her be, you know, too uh, preachy, I guess, or, or too, like, opinionated about these things, yeah. which is a hard balance. You know, like, how do you keep the character interesting and feel like they have their own voice, but not, you know, stepping on the player and, and letting them kind yeah. of make these discoveries? I want to bring up something I'm sure you've been talking about a lot. Uh, I, I'm sure you're aware of that uh, Atlantic article uh, that that uh, was sort of <laughs> jumping off yes. from from your game, talking about uh, are video games that try to tell stories inherently flawed, right? Is there a is there a problem with video games mm-hmm. even attempting to to have a narrative? Uh, first of all, let me just I would just like to know your uh, reaction. I have very strong feelings about it, but what what are your what is your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think initially it was one of confusion. Uh, you know, my take on it now is that it is a, um, uh, in some ways, a love letter to the game. Um, 
<laughs> not not the clearest letter we have received. Uh, I think that <laughs> my take on it, and maybe this is just like my own bias for you know how I feel about games, you know, is that uh, you know I guess I want to agree with the idea that games you know don't need to tell stories, and they certainly don't need to tell them in the way that movies you know or books do. That you know I would say that movies and books do a better job of telling linear stories. Like, there's less going on. You're not as distracted. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like if you're sitting down in a symphony hall and you listen to the orchestra versus, you know, driving along in your car listening to the radio. Like, there's music in both of those places, but, you know, there's just less going on if you're in the concert hall, like, ready to hear it. And it was just sort of a roundabout way of of saying, I guess, that... uh, you know, I think we use story in our game to achieve an end. Like we're trying to ultimately create experiences, not tell stories. Mm-hmm. And right. you know, I think that story is a really useful tool for doing things. But you know, kind of for me, it feels a bit like music, where you know, music is a useful tool for video games, but it's not necessarily like the best expression of music. Like, it's an accompaniment to other pieces. Right. And I think there are games that are are so focused on story that they lose sight of, you know, I think to me, like, what makes games especially interesting. Like, if your main goal is to tell a story, you know, I would say video games have a lot of disadvantages versus other ways that you can (laughs) tell that story. Right. So... I think this is fascinating, and, and it's a take that I haven't really heard before, and I, I want to try to unpack it. So I think what you're saying is that uh, story is just one part of your arsenal in order to create these experiences, that it is it is really just providing context for interactivity and all the other things that are at play in the experience that is what remains of Edith Finch, that story is just one element that – that conspires to uh, create a feeling that lands on me, right? Yeah, and I would say that to me, the thing that story does most importantly, and that is otherwise very difficult, is to transform it into a human activity. So, you know, chess is one of my favorite stories of all time. It transforms this very abstract game of, you know, pieces that can move in strange ways, you know, on a grid into like a conflict between nations that makes it somehow like much more resonant for us as humans. Um, That, you know, I think is, it's just a question of like, how much story do you really need? And I think chess kind of nails it for what chess is doing. (laughs) Um, A lot of games that I think ultimately would really benefit from having less story, from having less focus on, the details of plot and, you know, mystery and reveals and whatnot, um, you know, and, and kind of leverage story for, for what it really does uh, well. So you, so you would, your position is that story is not the primary aspect of what remains of Edith Finch. Uh, Whereas other people I think would say it's a, it's a game about delivering a story. You say, well, that's just one part of what it's doing. Yeah. I would say that for me, you know, Edith Finch is about, an exploration of the sublime. Like, what does it feel like to be in these places where you're simultaneously overcome by the beauty 
you know, and the overwhelming nature of the universe around you. Wow. Yeah. And I certainly got the game landed on me in a very powerful way. I, I cried multiple times um, in no small part because I'm a new father. So there's, there's a lot oh, of stuff. Yeah. That's, it's funny. That's something that we've heard uh, from a lot of playtesters is that the ones who have children experience many of the stories in a very different way uh, from, from people that do not. And it's been very interesting to see the reviews, you know, in the last uh, week or so since the game has been out, uh, you know, in some ways it's like the reviewer is outing themselves, you know, like describing like, what is it, you know, that they're drawn to, you know, as much as what is it, you know, that they think of the game, you know, and everybody has such a different reaction, but certainly people that uh, are parents, especially new parents uh, like yourself, you know, have very strong reactions to some of the stories and, you know, seeing children in peril. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's beautiful. Like I said, the, the swing, the swing one was one that, that immediately got me just because it is such a, a gorgeous ending and you feel this sense of freedom. And yet you also know what the reality of what happened is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the, you know, the baby in the bathtub one is, I was a puddle of goo by the end of that one because it's just, you know, I literally bathed my son the night I played that. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah. He's eight months old and it's, you know, it was like right in that wheelhouse. So yeah, you are the target audience. <laughs> That's what I thought. It felt like a game made for me and I'm right. glad it's true. Um, another thing that struck me about the game is how dense the environment is. Uh, I think in contrast to a lot of first person games, this really does feel like an actual place, uh, you know, a whimsical sort of fantasy world, almost like a children's book house come to life, but mm-hmm. but so packed with things and specific things and things that are rendered in such detail. You know, every book has a title and there are stacks of things everywhere and pictures on the wall and it's so densely built. Uh, and I wonder if you could speak to the process of doing that. Sure. I mean, I think one of our goals uh, from the beginning, you know, we had like three words that we were using to try to describe the game to ourselves. Like, what are the things we were trying to do? And they were uh, sublime, murky, and intimate. Mm. And we wanted something that felt intimate because, you know, I think it's hard to have a game that's just about the sublime. It's like a cake that's all frosting. Right. You needed to kind of sit on top of something. And like my favorite kind of surrealist works uh, like Bunuel or you know, like Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, have these very mundane, believable parts to them that balance the fantastical places that you'll go to. Hmm. So, you know, from the very beginning, we wanted the house to feel very mundane, but also, you know, a little bit exaggerated at the same time, which is a little bit of a contradiction, but, you know, making these secret passages, for example, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, they should be kind of elaborate and really fantastical, but feel like something that you could have made at Home Depot, like, <laughs> right. right? It's like, oh, I recognize that latch or, you know, right. uh, just something that, that, uh, that feels like it's from the real world, but, you know, is a little more exaggerated. And yeah, I love the sloppiness of how all the doors are sealed. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like it's not, it was not done well. And somebody was like, get these doors closed now. (laughs) Right. Right. In the garage, you can actually see the glue gun uh, that was used. It's like a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, Yeah. I think we also tried to find a way to, you know, take these very 
civilized spaces and make them feel a little bit more organic and, you know, kind of unsettling in that way. Like the you know, glue around the door frames, for example, is something that looks, you know, almost like a slime mold yeah. uh, as much as it does, you know, like a, a piece of, you know, human engineering uh, or like the walls, you know, we tried to cover every inch of them so that they go from feeling like, you know, I mean, it is a wall full of pictures of humans, which is a very, you know, human thing, but at a certain density, it starts to feel more like moss or like the bark of a tree, hmm. uh, you know, and trying to make the house feel overwhelming, you know, in the way that, you know, the stories also uh, feel a bit overwhelming. Yeah, they do indeed. Um, so do you, in general, um, embrace or reject the walking simulator moniker? Is that... Yeah, I have some mixed feelings about it. I feel like it's confusing right now. That's my only beef with it is that when people ask if it's a walking simulator or not, I don't know if they're coming from a place of really liking those kind of games <laughs> right. or you know, really disliking. Like, do they mean it as an insult or a compliment? Um, you know, I think we just don't have a better term for it. Like, you know, people complain that, you know, it, it's not a game because it doesn't have fail states uh, in it. And, right. you know, at some level that might be true, uh, but it's sort of the best we have, uh, you know, in terms of a name. So, you know, I think of it more as an experience than a game exactly in the way that, like, you know, chess is definitely a game. This right. is, like, it has game elements. It's very interactive. Um, it wouldn't really make sense as a movie, I think. But, um, yeah, Walking Simulator, it's a really cool word. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that people have reappropriated it, you know, in the way yeah. that, uh, you know, a lot of other sort of, uh, you know, cultures or whatnot have, have taken words and then, you know, made it their own. Well, they've, it's only been reappropriated because so many of the games that fall into that category are so good. Right. I think, I think that's what's happening is that, you know, people started call, using it in a, in a, as a pejorative, you know, and because these games like yours are so powerful and so effective and so interesting, it's become like, oh, well, I got to tune into this next <laughs> walking simulator because these games are really, really interesting. Right, right. It's funny. Like, people meant it to be insulting, and then it's like, oh, yeah, that thing that a million people love? <laughs> right. That's that thing? Yeah. Uh, so is this the space that, that Giant Sparrow wants to, wants to live in going forward? Or is, is the next thing you guys make going to be a similar type of experience? Or I mean, Unfinished Swan is, is you know, not very similar to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... The next game will be very different, uh, just like this game was was very different. Uh, I would say that Unfinished Swan and What Remains of Edith Finch are both games that are about the unknown. Uh, you know, so there is a fair amount of commonality there. Uh, I think our next game will be more focused on animation and movement. So, I mean, I feel like that's something that I'm personally really interested in. Each of these games is just really a way for me to spend you know, several years thinking about a thing that is interesting to me. So right now, I'm really interested in the way that people and animals move. I have no idea what that game is going to be, uh, you know, but I think it will, you know, be quite different from anything we've made and hopefully anything that anyone has ever seen before. Well, that's very exciting. I, I can't wait to see what's next. And, uh, you know, usually when I or others describe a game as beautiful, you're talking about how good the graphics are. Uh, mm -hmm. With What Remains of Edith Finch, I can honestly say it is a beautiful game in every sense of the word, and, and uh, I, I'm just so in love with it. So thanks for making it. 
Oh, thank you. And thank you for the beautiful interview. And thanks for being on. I appreciate it. Take care.